need a roll call? Trustee Avalada. Here. Trustee Peterson. Here. Trustee Hernandez. Here. Trustee Banerjee. Here. Trustee Shequin. Here. Trustee Bouquet. Oh, there is. Uh, Trustee DeVries. Here. And Trustee Jensen. 515 general QPC meeting. I can ask folks to mute themselves if they're not speaking. I'm going to start us off with uh, public comment. Welcome, everybody. Um, we've got three speakers on non agenda items. If we could have Chelsea DeMarte, if I got that right. If she could go ahead and start speaking. Chelsea, can you unmute yourself? Okay, can you hear me now? Yes. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much. So uh, my name is Chelsea DeMarty, and I work at the Intensive Outpatient Program uh, Behavioral Health at Fairmont Hospital. And I've worked for the Medical Center for about 10 years, and I'm here to um, update the board. Chelsea, uh, if I could interrupt a second. Could you turn off the uh, mute your computer if you're using a telephone? That's why you're getting the echo. Turn off mute to what? Mute, push the mute on your computer if you're using audio. Which causing the mute. So echo. push mute. Okay, say. Okay, is that better without headphones? Okay, yes, that's better. Thank you. Uh, okay, great. So Chelsea DeMarty, 10 years, Alameda Health System, um, um, intensive outpatient behavioral health. Um, so first and foremost, I'm here today on behalf of my staff to thank the board so much for taking action since our last meeting and um, encouraging our administration and leadership to meet with us. Um, they have, in fact, met with us. Um, we're very grateful to meet with Del Vecchio, Dr. Wise, Dr. Barbaria to, to uh, speak about behavioral health. So thank you so much on behalf of our staff. Uh, we'd like to let you know what's been going on in the meetings so far that we've had. Um, so Dr. Barbaria has talked to us about expanding behavioral health um, with AHS, which is something that we are in agreement with and are highly supportive of. However, we continue to have concerns that our IOP program will be in fact closed. Um, when we ask leadership about their intentions for IOP, what they say is that it, is, it has been undecided what's going to happen with IOP. Um, we are not confident that it's going to be kept open. We think it's still on the table to dismantle the IOP, um, presumably to help um, use staff to fund these other programs with expansion. So I want to be clear that our staff is all for expanding our services. Um, we want to expand our safety net in the community to other populations like the moderately mentally ill. But we do not want to do this at the expense of the IOP program. We do not want to shuffle around resources and take away the safety net of the IOP and give it to another population so that our IOP people will end up in the hospital, um, homeless, incarcerated, and, and also dead. 
Um, so we don't think that that's a great plan, and we continue to voice our concerns. However, we want to um, stress that we are willing to work with leadership, and we're grateful to have a seat at the table for planning at this time. So what we've learned is that the, the Medical Center for Ambulatory actually has about 300 referrals per week, about 36,000 per year of mental health needs for moderately mentally ill. And um, what we've been told is that the, the goal is to refer these people in-house to for behavioral health. Um, this is a huge project that scope is huge. And although IOP wants to help in this planning process, it, it's beyond our scope. We need more expertise, more experts to come in, other consultants to help with this large-scale planning process. Um, so our union rep, Ariana Casanova, has actually volunteered. She's reached out to leadership to offer her expertise, um, not in an adversarial way, but a helpful way. She has a proven track record of planning large-scale systems like this for medical centers. And that it looks like that's what AHS needs right now. So we... Um, would, we'd like, we hope that administration help, um, takes her in as a consultant. We're really hoping for that. Um, we hope that they continue to meet with us because we're glad that they're finally meeting with us. For instance, uh, we've been actually asking for budget meetings for over 12 months. We haven't gotten a budget meeting. Last week was the first budget meeting we got after asking for 12 months. We need to continue to talk about our budget and talk about program and continue to talk about keeping IOP, which is something they're hesitant. They will not promise us that will happen. So my ask for you to... Okay. Am I at time? Yes, you can finish your sentence. Okay, just last thing is please, we're asking to continue to hold leadership accountable for balancing the budget, keeping IOP open, and keeping this expansion separate from IOP. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you so much. We have Laura Wall next. And just a reminder to try to keep your remarks at three minutes, please. Laura Wall. You'll need to unmute yourself. Laura Wall? Okay, why don't we go to Craig Metz and we'll come back to Laura. Um, hi, can you, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. So I don't know why my video is not working. Um, yes, yeah, so I'll, I'll try to be pretty quick. So, um, again, really we'd like to, my name's Craig Matz. Um, I'm, I'm a therapist at AHS's IOP PHP program at Fairmont. Um, we'd just like you were focused and burdened with trying to care for clients during this crisis. And we, and we really wouldn't come and interrupt your meeting if we didn't feel like we were really fighting for our clients' lives. Um, so, yeah, and we'd like to thank you for, for, for um, pushing or, or directing leadership to meet with us. It's been really, really nice to have those conversations. And um, we're really amenable to helping out. And, um, you know, but we're not, we're, we're sort of intractable around IOP program because... You know, I think as you can understand, it's just so important. Um, our clients are just so vulnerable. Um, and so we're really just fighting for them because they're, uh, they're just not going to do well without our program. They're going to they're gonna use resources at an incredible rate. Um, they're going to have really high mortality risks. Um, and, and what we really want to stress is that 
you know that so ambulatory is saying that they they have a huge need to meet um to meet the therapy needs for for clients with a mild to moderate symptoms and um, and we we would love to be part of that process however meeting this need should be in addition to meeting the needs of acute patients with a severe and persistent mental illness like those people in our iop program not instead of um and that, i think that's just the main point is that it just feels like these two things are separate right meeting the needs of um people with moderate to mild conditions is is something that's important but it's not connected to meeting the needs of people with severe and persistent mental illness um and it, it, somehow these seem to be getting connected but they're not they come from different budget streams um and the needs um are just very different um so we just really would help hope that you would direct ahs leadership to follow your previous directive to keep our hospital systems iop php programs open um then we can together go about the monumental task of figuring out how to meet the needs of the estimated 3000 to 4000 mental health referrals from ambulatory each year so that's it thank you very much i really appreciate the time Thank you. Do we have Laura Wall? Okay, seems like Laura's not with us here. So I'm going to go ahead and move us to the medical staff report. Dr. Bellard? Hello. Yes. Hi, Dr. Bellard. Hello. Can Hi. you hear me? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. That's not me. This is Laura Wall. Can you hear me? Yes, yeah. Laura. We can hear you. Okay. Oh, so we're good. That's the public Thank comment. You. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, hi, my name is Laura Wall, and I'm also a therapist at AHS's Intensive Outpatient and Partial Hospitalization Program at Fairmont Hospital. We thank the board for directing leadership to meet with us about our proposed changes to AHS's Intensive Outpatient Program. These meetings have begun to happen, and yet there's still no advocacy to keep the intensive outpatient program open. We understand that Dr. Barbaria um, has indicated that ambulatory patients with mild to moderate symptoms severely lack mental health services. We would love to help design a program to meet this need. However, meeting this need should be in addition to meeting the needs of acute patients with a severe and chronic mental illness in our intensive outpatient program, not instead of. The two populations are very different as are their revenue sources. Unlike the mental health referrals from ambulatory where the symptoms are mostly mild to moderate, AHS's intensive outpatient programs patients have diagnoses such as schizophrenia, which is chronic and severe. These patients have had numerous ER visits and hospitalizations prior to participating in our program. 
We are a step down from inpatient services and a step up from county wellness clinics and case management. Many of our patients are at greatly increased mortality risks without our services, and so we continue to fight for their lives. Please direct AHS leadership to follow your directive to keep our hospital systems, intensive outpatient and partial hospitalization programs open. Then we are happy to collaborate together to figure out how to meet the needs of the mental health referrals from ambulatory mild to moderate. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. Great. I'm going to move us now to the medical staff reports if there's no other public comment. Dr. Ballard? Yeah, hi. So uh, in your packet, you see a summary of the credentials and privileges that were approved in QPSC. And um, I guess the, the discussion that I was hoping to bring in was that there have been an enormous amount of work both around the credentialing for disaster privileges around COVID, but also around telemedicine. I, um, I think it's my bias to think that disaster care always betters a system for actual day-to-day -day existence, and this will be another example of that. Um, our ability to use telemedicine, as um, was uh, voiced in the QPSC meeting by some of the ambulatory folks, has already started to expand our ability to reach out to patients and to communicate in ways that we didn't before. So although we've credentialed people under a temporary disaster <coughs> umbrella for the, uh, for the COVID um, expansive coverage, there will be a lot more work to come in terms of how we're gonna handle telemedicine and uh, especially video teleconferencing after the, the uh, disaster has been considered uh, mitigated and I think that that by itself is going to be a, a venue for us to improve our quality exponentially and improve our access but there will need to be a lot of work around it both to make sure that we're doing it in a way that we can um, financially support it and also manage to make sure that we've got our credentialing and our and our recredentialing in a way that will be safe ongoing so that we can use this and it will benefit patients and not harm them. In terms of um, the rest of my report, um, there's a, you know several different uh, policies and procedures and, and things in our consent agenda that were pretty completely vetted and that are also referred to in the packet. The uh, you know I think we as a as a group on the med staff or the core are really focusing on improving our scrutiny of our um, our ongoing professional evaluations of each other, trying to improve our processes on that end. In the majority of our closed session, we spent talking about cases and being very scrutinous of kind of the way we evaluate each other and our ongoing FPPE and OPPE processes. So um, for the most part, I think that we've got an opportunity to learn and grow from this, from this uh, pandemic and become a better system on the other side. And I can already see signs of that happening in the open and closed sessions of our med staff uh, meetings. And that's about all I got. 
Dr. Ballard. Um, uh, so for, for the rest of the non-QPSC board members, uh, this is Taft Bouquet. Um, uh, uh, I want to disinform you of a discussion which is have been having in the QPSC. As most of you guys know, uh, the, the chiefs of staff hold uh, parallel agenda items at both the QPSC and here at the full board. Um, uh, they're, it's a redundant position uh, to give them their voice, but one side effect we've appreciated over the years is the robust dialogue which happens at QPSC uh, often doesn't advance to the board of trustees meeting, and we often say, we, we discuss that in detail at QPSC. Part of the rationale behind this pilot move with uh, Trustee Avaleta's uh, uh, approval is, is to basically shrink the medical staff reports at the QPSC so that this uh, becomes their primary platform. So um, I'm going to, I know it, it feels a little bit new for the rest of the trustees, but this is the place where you get to en engage our, our chiefs of staff. Um, so Dr. Ballard, I'm going to advance the question that I used to ask as a regular uh, process in the QPSC, I'll now advance that to the board of trustees uh, meeting. Can you rank list your your top three concerns that you currently have? Dr. Ballard? Yeah, I can. So in past in past meetings of QPSC, I think my... Kelly, can you get closer to the mic? Can you hear me now? Yeah, great. Great. So, you know, in previous, um, <coughs> previous QPSC um, reports, I think at the three, my three uh, were communication uh, relationships with the administration and relationships and trust with each other, I think is my most recent one. You know, I think everything has shifted in most of our lives thanks to COVID. And I, and I will say my, my current focus and my current concerns are sort of, I alluded to in my report in that, you know, we're at a, we're at a, a, a position of great potential in that we've started doing things we've never done before. We've had, you know, we've actually built a surge plan after 15 years of, of certain different parts of this institution wanting to have a surge plan. We actually have one now. And we've, we've kind of pulled together in a crisis and started building infrastructure. And it, it's beautiful. But I think we're at a really serious crossroads at this point because everyone's starting to take you know, a release breath and everybody go, everybody's saying, Oh, wow, we're not, you know, we haven't, we haven't really seen the crisis we thought we were going to see and the things are getting better and we can start talking about reopening. And I'm, I'm really hopeful that's true. At the same time, we still have patients, staff and, and other providers you know, being exposed to COVID, we have, you know, I, I just, I really hope that we can use this as an opportunity and move forward with a different way of being than we did before. As recently as yesterday, I, I heard echoes of why aren't, why aren't the rounds happening and 
you know, where's the incident command center? And, and, you know, and I signed into the call yesterday and heard, oh, we're going to kind of start relaxing things because we feel like the crisis is passing. So I just, I really hope that we don't, that we move forward with a, you know, with a very cautious eye as to how we're, we're handling, you know, this new transition into where we are after this experience. So I guess my first one is, is my first item on the list is to stay prepared and stay active in responding to things going on with the pandemic and any other disaster-related issues. My second thing on my list would be continuing to be communication, both between med staff and the executives. And I think we're starting to take steps in improving that, although we have a long way to go. And I think lastly, we my third item on my list definitely has to be um, if we think of the, the system as a person, you know, I know they say companies aren't people and shouldn't be able to, you know, do things. But if we think of the system as a person, there's, you know, a system-wide self-care initiative. And more than just, more than just go do yoga in the green space kind of self-care, I mean, resilience and helping to support resilience in ways that we haven't yet and it takes more than you know than the take care of yourself get rest and eat plenty of good greens it's more of a what is going to help the system be resilient and be in good system health so that we can deliver what we, the, the kind of care we need to our community and i don't think we've really approached it from that standpoint i think we've kind of been more individually encouraging people to do self-care whereas i think our system has also taken a hit and we we have a lot of work to do in terms of kind of having a a health care for our system approach that's about it so just to refresh you know remember i always like to repeat it back so the rest of the board doesn't get to see this part of me so number one preparedness number two communication particularly between the med staff and, and the executive team and then number three, I'll, I'll suppose I'll call it a system culture of resilience. Does that accurately capture? Yeah, much more eloquently than I did, actually. Yeah, I make it up. And, <laughs> and, then, and then my follow-up question always, as you recall, Kelly, is do you feel resourced to navigate these challenges? You know, I'm, I'm in a pessimistic mood today, so I'm going to say no. There's a little bit of that going around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think we're. I think we definitely. You know, our character and our strength and our ability to take on the future will really be, I think, very clearly determined in the next two to four weeks and how we how we move forward in the next, um, you know, the next several evolutions of what we've been through so far. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't necessarily feel resourced right now. Thank you, Kelly. Dr. Ballard. Well, that was a mic drop. <laughs> okay. Sorry, I was muted and I couldn't get unmuted. Um, great. So... Thank you for that, Dr. Ballard. Um, Dr. Ingenio. 
Sure, I'll be glad to provide a report. I'll try to make it uh, succinct. Um, we did not have a, a um, physician leadership committee meeting for reasons of just logistics, but I did, uh, and I have remained in contact with the, the key players in the various departments. Um, Dr. Fowley in the emergency department uh, would give a report that there is some volume creeping up. They had been actually previously fairly slow, but he would note that the ICU acuity and admission rate is higher. Uh, I think more acute patients are coming in the emergency department. Uh, the COVID plan and patients have been fairly stable. Initially in April, there was a very high positivity rate in the emergency department at San Leandro, up to 35%, but that's lessened down. Um, and it be, appears to be more in line with the system. Um, the department's actually making plans to expect a surge in lower acuity patients and COVID, COVID negative rule-outs as restrictions are limited in the community. They're, they have some real concerns that there'll be a rush to the ED for people who aren't coming and they're doing uh, appropriate staffing. Um, the department also appreciates the uh, added nursing that was provided. They are concerned, but somewhat understanding with the other urgent plans that there's still no replacement monitors in the department and uh, they welcome the new portable x-ray machines and iPads. The, uh, uh, a couple of concerning items are that the ED contracting is not going well and apparently, quote unquote, has been very frustrating. Um, I am told that they're striving for staffing of just at least one position. Um, this is ED contracting for the physicians uh, and uh, one position per shift, but apparently this has still been a contentious issue in terms of the number of FTEs to be provided. And hopefully this can be uh, worked through, but this has been very frustrating to the, uh, the ED physicians. Um, operations has denied all scribes for the ED physicians at this point. Um, and they have felt that they've in the past been very helpful and have improved efficiency as well as morale in the physicians and have uh, noted to be very helpful in many ways other than just scribing. These folks tend to be um, overqualified for the job. Um, and we have uh, a number of them in our office, and so I can attest to their usefulness. We also have uh, some very serious concerns with the ED manager, who was, must also manage the ICU, is stressed way too thin. There were two assistant managers, one left. I think one um, moved on for other reasons, were lost, and they were recently informed that these positions will not be refilled. Um, they feel that the current manager is an excellent asset and uh, that without appropriate help, um, she's not going to be able to do her job. And uh, a number of items are already are not being done because she's stretched too thin and they really want to retain that person. Uh, moving on to the inpatient hospitalist physicians, they appear to be managing the COVID um, staffing uh, pretty well. Uh, the last I heard yesterday afternoon when checking statistics, there were five patients at San Leandro Hospital, four in the ICU, um, who were quite ill. But the admissions have been, at least new admissions have been low. These are patients that have been admitted uh, for a number of days. Um, they locally have tried to help uh, create uh, some uh, work on where to locate these patients at San Leandro. And I know there's an overall surge plan which you'll probably hear about later. And then another uh, serious concern is uh, specialty coverage um, for neuro GI um, and the feeling that, you know, tele for these things is, is probably not going to be adequate. Um, 
for surgery department, a uh, couple items. The volumes are still very low in the operating room, but this is by design, limiting all to just emergencies. The staff is anxious to, to I think, be working more. Um, the uh, I think the bandwidth's there to potentially do some outpatient procedures, um, maybe not purely elective ones, but there are some that are more urgent but not elective, and hopefully we can get back to doing those, especially since they would potentially not tax of the inpatient beds volume. Um, so that's there. I also need to note that the vascular ultrasound contract for both San Leandro and Alameda Hospital has been canceled. And that's after 35 years of service uh, from our group um, and really top quality service for our group has been and was perhaps one of the first vascular ultrasound labs in the state of California, if not the country. So. And that would end my report. And then to jump right to doctor, before I entertain questions, uh, unless you want me to, uh, I'll list my top three now, um, and then I'll entertain questions. I think number one is, uh, you know, leadership at San Leandro Hospital. In my opinion, the, the structure that was proposed by uh, leadership um, changing the way there was no chief administrative officer at San Leandro has been detrimental to the facility. There's no uh, administrator who really is responsible and um, takes as their responsibility the success specifically of that one location. I think this has um, sort of changed its position um, and it's become, there's no real advocate at a administrative and board level of that facility, in my opinion. And I also, in my opinion, feel this is by design. Um, that's number one. Number two, uh, the COVID, uh, plans, um, are a concern, um, but thus far have been uh, manageable. Um, but there certainly are concerns there. And I think some Patients have been transferred to Highland when appropriate, and that's worked out well. And then number three, specialty coverage, um, both from the ED and from the uh, inpatient side. I've been uh, alerted that these are continued issues, um, and the concerns are that you know tele is not going to cover all that. And that would conclude my report. Sorry, I was so long-winded. Dr. Ingenia, do you feel resourced to navigate those top three? And one more time, your number one was the leadership structure, uh, the administrative leadership structure. Number two was the COVID planning. Uh, number three was specialty coverage. Is, did I capture that correctly? You did. Uh, leadership, I don't know that I have any resources to, to deal with that specifically. Um, the COVID planning, I think as an overall system plan, um, I think they're, you know, reviewing the, the board, um, the notes there appears to be a good system plan in place. I'm not sure that was articulated very well with the hospitalists at San Leandro, um, but that's my uh, gestalt. I can't say for sure. Uh, I don't think there's a good, uh, you know, local plan for specialty coverage. Okay. Thank you. Any questions for me? I'll be glad to entertain now. Dr. Ingenio, can you expand a little bit, share about the contract? Uh, sure. You know, our, our group has contracted for vascular ultrasound services, and, and there's a lot of details here that I, I don't want to belabor, uh, belabor and waste the time of the board. Um, but 
the essential uh, gist is that on a system, the, the, the senior administrators have determined that our services are, I guess, I'm not sure, are not cost effective in the scheme of what Highland pays for similar services. And I have tried to impress multiple times that we're not comparing apples to apples here. You know, the, the, the sheer breadth of the, the vascular ultrasound studies we do is there are probably at least 16 protocols um, that we do for various different tests. And these are not the usual things that um, an average uh, ultrasound, vascular ultrasound lab would do, yet that is not felt to be an important consideration. Um, negotiations stalled and delayed for prolonged periods of time. And then we were suddenly given ultimatums, which I felt were inappropriate. Um, and uh, blamed on legal. Um, there was the, the standard Stark violation, um, which I think it doesn't hold water in my opinion you know, when you compare the, the level of services. And then when further discussions uh, were entertained to include cutting the degree of services that we provide in terms of hours and coverage for weekends and holidays, um, they were not even discussed and the contract was terminated. And I can give you a lot more detail if you'd like, but I think the board has a lot of things to discuss today. Any other questions? I think Trustee Jensen's tr asking to be unmuted. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. You're unmuted. unmuted. We can hear you. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, maybe, unfortunately, I don't have an option to waive or anything, so I guess. Um, if I want to speak, I should just, since we're all muted, I should just try and get Taft's attention. Um, my question was about the service that's being discontinued. Dr. Ingenio, um, the vascular ultrasound service, it, it sounds like this service will no longer be offered. Through well, it's, it, it's probably going to be replaced by the outside contractor who provides the service, at least. I, I don't know the exact plan. That was not, but I would assume that's the plan the outside contractor that is doing a similar service at Highland. So this service, it's a matter of replacing your, you as providers, your group as providers. Not specifically as providers, but our service, service. that we have provided for the ultrasound right. techs, right? So the, the way the contract was structured, and this is a legacy contract that was there and vetted, honestly, from the Sutter days when Sutter Legal did this, we essentially provided the technical support, the technologists to do the studies who are trained and uh, very thoroughly vetted and trained by us. It is not a simple process to do this. We live and die by these vascular ultrasounds. We operate by with them. We do not routinely perform CTs or MRIs. We do almost everything we do 
for a diagnosis with ultrasound. And that's why our practice has thrived in this fashion. And um, this significantly changes the way we can treat things. And it's going to change our patterns because we're going to have to order other tests in general because, you know, having dealt with this at other levels, we're on staff at a lot of different hospitals. We, pro we provide services in other facilities. Um, the, uh, the degree of detail to perform an operation based on an ultrasound is not there with other vendors. For the average internist who needs to know if somebody has a DVT or a screening for a carotid stenosis, you know, that may be appropriate. But for example, most physicians or many do CT angiograms or angiograms when they do a carotid endarterectomy. People with a quality vascular lab will do that operation based on an ultrasound alone. And that's the way we've done it for years. In fact, when we did this early on, that was looked at as out of the norm because we did this 25 years ago, potentially. And that was not considered uh, standard. Now that has become much more standard than mainstream. So that's the type of example. So it's, it's going to change what we're going to do. And there were, there were a lot of discussions into this and, you know, we obviously were not happy um, about this and, and it's not the financial component. I got to tell you, we do a lot of other things. The, the financial ramifications of this to our group are, are not that quite frankly, that significant. Um, other than, you know, we may have to terminate some ultrasound techs who we spend a long time uh, getting up to speed and don't really want to, but hopefully we're not going to be able to do that. Um, so the, uh, it's more the way it changes our pattern and, and even the tone of the negotiations was, I don't want to use too many strong words. Um, I'll say particularly inciting in, in not inciting, uh, insulting and offensive in, at times. Um, doctor, finally, Dr. Jenner, do you think that this will reduce your ability to provide, I mean, obviously it sounds like this is going to impact and possibly reduce your ability to provide services at both San Leandro and Alameda hospitals to patients who need this, this particular, who would benefit from this, service or can it'll, you it'll potentially change it'll potentially change the way we do this and yes yes and i mean there are other issues related to that too um imaging issues in the operating room itself but yes that is correct thank you any other questions for dr engineer Thank you, doctor. You're welcome. And Dr. Marburg, next. Uh, yes, uh, let me uh, uh, start off with my report, uh, obviously, with uh, the usual. Uh, I mean, I will dispense with the usual privileges and uh, temporary disaster privileges and uh, the COVID plan, uh, because these were uh, system-wide, and obviously we've been involved heavily with that. Uh, however, I, I want to tag onto uh, Dr. Ingenio's uh, comments. Uh, we're 
the recent MEC, we were just, uh, which was uh, last Friday, we were just told of uh, uh, the lack of uh, veteran jails and contract services. And that was our method of communication. Uh, we were actually told that that uh, they were um, terminated from the service. Now, this is a, a pattern which we've seen multiple, multiple times of lack of communication with the medical staff, uh, our medical staff, for input as to the necessity of certain services, the quality of certain services. We were not at all involved in saying in, in, uh, in the aspect of, hey, what do we want to see in a vascular surgery service? What are the essentials that we need? What about, what are, uh, do we have any, any uh, concerns about the current service that we have? Should, what, what should we have for our new vascular service? This has been done repeatedly, repeatedly with the administration, repeatedly for every single contract from emergency room, uh, from radiology, uh, from uh, uh, every, without any medical staff input. Uh, and that's, that's been a pattern uh, which, which uh, you know, um, is is not respectful of the the medical staff and the physician medical staff. Uh, that been an issue of discussion ever since for long as I get, I've been on the MEC. And uh, the things are done. Who cares what the medical staff thinks uh, or their input in that process? Uh, that's uh, 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 a main issue in our last MEC meeting. Uh, the second uh, uh, and uh, uh, the second aspect that uh, we discussed was was uh, because of the stringent uh, uh, requirements of visitors to actually see their loved ones. Uh, in, a, in a terminal state or in a, uh, because of the requirements of patients who are in the ICU who may not be able to see uh, their loved ones uh, or uh, we, we actually from the medical staff funds uh, authorized uh, two iPads uh, to be used uh, for, for patient communication. Not uh, necessarily, not uh, uh, actually, physician uh, examination, etc. Although it can be subsequently used for that, so we have uh, purchased uh, uh, two iPads uh, for just like uh, having a uh, uh, either FaceTime or face-to-face one with uh, with uh, loved ones in the in the ICU in terms of uh, communication, particularly. For uh, uh, as a as a method of communication, so we purchased that on our own funds, and uh, and once uh, uh, um, uh, as as an initial method of communication, 
And um, uh, uh, last thing is obviously we've all been encumbered with uh, with our uh, planning and surge uh, planning for COVID, and unfortunately, uh, we've uh, uh, we're, we haven't seen a tremendous surge. I think we've had one patient in Alameda Hospital for on a ventilator and ended up going home. Uh, uh, who was uh, hospitalized? Our census, because of uh, lack of uh, of uh, operations and lack of and as noted. Oh, you're studying, huh? Uh, hello. Hello. Okay. I'm sorry. That's okay. Go ahead. I think someone was not. Uh, our, our census. Our census. Uh, uh, has, uh, with, in terms of has been down in terms of because of uh, patients are, are hesitant to come into the hospital with acute illnesses or with illnesses uh, and uh, uh, and because of the lack of elective surgeries uh, that's impacted our census uh, but we've, we've been uh, getting by uh, that's essentially my report Dr. Marzouk, will you give us your rank list top three, please? Uh, well, uh, continued uh, disaster for COVID. Uh, then, what can I say? Lack of uh, communication uh, with uh, administration for uh, for lack of input from our medical staff uh, for major decisions. Uh, and uh, and uh, everything else has been in the back burner. So just the top two, right? Disaster planning and communication. Yeah, the the, the top two, and and probably the third is as as uh, as things if things start winding down in terms of of uh, how to uh, what the new norm is going to be. Do you feel resourced to navigate these challenges? Uh, yes, for the COVID, yes. Okay. That's great to hear. Thank you. I guess before we move on, I just wanted to give a little bit of space because uh, both Dr. Genio and Dr. Marzuk referenced some items around it, 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 it was sort of, I guess, related to the medical staff report, but also related to some, some contract issues and uh, just, just in an effort to make sure we're having a, a balanced discussion, I'm assuming Dr. Gassan, Dr. Taft may be aware of this. I don't know if you wanted, you know, the opportunity to to, to weigh in on any of this. Mm -hmm. So, Trustee Avaleta, as uh, I, I have no impact on contracts, I just talk with the med staff, so I would defer this one to to staff on this discussion. I think the principles, however, I've discussed previously, should include um, the, the local leader who's responsible uh, in concert with the chief medical officer should be the driving decision behind uh, clinical uh, contracting and services. So in this particular case, the, the, the I'll call it the division of vascular surgery sits underneath the department of surgery. So I guess my question would uh, to, to staff uh, and our CMO would be, uh, was there a uh, congruence uh, of opinion of this move between the chair of surgery, Dr. Greg Victorino, 
and the chief medical officer's office. And then I think everything is in support of it. Do, do, do these decisions uh, meet uh, uh, regulatory compliance uh, concerns? And then third, where along the spectrum of quality finance and relationship does this sit uh, to ask ourselves, are these decisions, uh, is, is this the best decision? And uh, I'll say I don't have all the data and uh, uh, I shouldn't be privy to all the data. I just want to know whether whether we're following principles about how we make decisions. And that that's what I would just say about this. Hey, uh, can I speak? Please, yeah, please. You can hear me, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I, I just want to first uh, uh, like recognize uh, Dr. Ingenio and his group uh, that I have the utmost respect for them, you know, as physicians and colleagues. And uh, we indeed had, uh, have had uh, all the time a very good collegial uh, relationship and, uh, and we respect the care that they deliver to our patients uh, throughout the system. Uh, you know, as Dr. Ingenio has clarified, this is a contract that uh, was inherited from Sutter, and we were faced by uh, you know major legal issue is that we are delivering the same value of care at least you know on paper as it looks, and there were different uh, different price, uh, and uh, uh, you know we we have tried really to to negotiate uh, all through. Uh, a long period of time to come up to an agreement. Uh, and uh, we uh, finally accepted a proposal that uh, Dr. Ingenio has given us, and I went through this proposal with legal and finance. But then, you know, uh, there was some element that were not included in the proposal. And uh, he, uh, I mean, his group went back and they added uh, some uh, administrative fees to that. Uh, and then we had really to to move on, uh, uh, and uh, uh, and and uh, you know just to, uh, during this time I was preparing uh, you know in case we don't reach an agreement, what what it would look like to systemize throughout the system, and uh, utilize the vascular group uh, or the technical vascular group that is at Highland with the vascular surgeons from UCSF. And uh, just looking at the best interest of our system, the best interest of our patients, uh, and uh, I, I, you know, I had to support this decision. And all along the way, uh, the chair of uh, surgery, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Greg Victorino, was was uh, involved in all this decision. Our vascular surgeon from uh, UCSF, uh, who. Uh, is full-time at Highland. Dr. Arabi was also involved in all this evaluative process. Uh, so uh, we are not, just to be clear, we are not terminating the relationship with, with Dr. Ingenio and his group. We value them. We, we would like to continue our relationship. We are just systemizing our vascular ultrasound uh, technical aspect and reading aspect throughout, uh, throughout the system as such. As it goes to Lamida Hospital, uh, in the in the initial proposal uh, that was given to us, we were going to uh, uh, take off Lamida Hospital and keep at St. Leandro just to accommodate their surgical services. And then uh, I had told at that time uh, Dr. Marzouk that we might be uh, giving Alameda Hospital to the same group at Highland. 
but then when we accepted the proposal, I went back on this. Now, at the end, when when we see it's not working out, it was really in the midst of the COVID crisis and uh, my lack of communication with Dr. Marzouk specifically uh, was due to uh, being involved in the COVID crisis uh, at a very, very busy level and very uh, intense way. Uh, but I, I, I had involved uh, definitely uh, Dr. Dr. Uh, Greg Victorino, who operates at uh, at, uh, at Alameda Hospital, and he was supportive of the plan. I mean, that's in brief my my uh, my response to 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 this. There is a lot of details. Uh, uh, I. Uh, uh, I, I was as much as possible, you know, communicative with Dr. Ingenio uh, throughout this process. Thank you, Dr. Jamaluddin. I really appreciate that. And thank you. I'm um, just to be clear, this is not, you know, a contract that is um, of the size that comes to the Board of Trustees consideration. But since it was brought up in two med staff reports, I didn't want to just leave it hanging out there and wanted to have that, that balance. There. So, so thank you, Dr. Jamaluddin and Dr. Ingenio and Dr. Mahzouk for that discussion. Yeah. Um, I think, can I, can I add something? I, I, I think, I mean, COVID is adding a lot of complexities, but I think, again, this brings up that there's a sense of urgency, there's a crisis, there's something, but we don't, just having a protocol, because like you said, um, the chief of surgery was involved in all of this decision-making, but the folks who are on the ground who actually do the work, um, you know, in these, when making these decisions, um, it helps to, even if things are not going the way, to have their input as well. And I think Dr. Mingenio needs to have his line unmuted. I can just, uh, while he's getting unmuted, uh, the ED group were involved into this, uh, the surgical group were involved into this. So um, maybe, uh, you know, uh, the failure is really to speak to Dr. Bobby Deutsch and Dr. Uh, Dr. Marzouk, which we will do in the next time. Actually, I did talk to him that things were not going well in the first phase of the negotiation. Let's be honest here, uh, Gassan. I don't want to tit for tat here, but, you know, the first time this was terminated at... Uh, at Alameda, I don't know how much Greg knew any about any of this because I spoke to him directly and asked him if he understood what was going on, and and he told me directly he didn't know about any of this. So you know, and that was at the first stage, and and whenever services were going to be limited, i.e., removing weekends, holidays, all these other things, and I, I, you know, the first thing I said to you is you need to talk to the medical staff to let them know you're reducing the services at these two facilities. And they were completely unaware. I spoke to them, you know, after our discussions. Are you aware of these things? And they became aware when I spoke to them. You know, this was another example of changing services without involving the medical staff. And that's really all I have to say about it. Sorry. Thank you, doctors. Uh, any trustee questions? Any further Questions for the medical staff? Is that Tracy, uh, Trustee Jensen, I think, wanting to get unmuted? Yeah, I tried to raise my hand, but that didn't work either. Mm -hmm. um, so I just wanted to follow. Uh, all I can really say is that at least at Alameda Hospital, this has been an ongoing problem. The Alameda Hospital, you all, um, some board members, probably 
just Kenny and Maria and Joe will recall that um, when we had a retreat at San Leandro Hospital, uh, yeah, San Leandro Hospital three or four years ago, the surgeons from Alameda Hospital came to say, oh, we our, our contract was just terminated, the on-call surgeons. And then um, the emergency department service was just completely, the, the, the providers were um, California emergency physicians. Well, they didn't come to agreement, so there was sound, and then there was um, oak care. This, these things just happened without any input or any support or any discussion with with not only staff, not only the physicians, but the healthcare district in Alameda and um, the physicians at, at where these at, at the other sites where the where the um, doctors practice. So I'm not sure what the solution is other than communication which continues to just be looked at as a unnecessary unnecessary action it seems like especially in this case <laughs> hello can i speak please trustee claim yeah i you know i hear a dispute people have strong feelings about it they have different perceptions of what happened for trustees to start making judgments about who's right and wrong, and what's the cause of it? It's it's we we need to spend a whole day trying to figure out what's going on with this. I think the parties need to talk. I'm all for that. That was refused to me. Well, I would ask that the parties talk. I would not. Thank you, Trustee Shequin. Um, I, I completely agree, and I don't. I, I think there's some. Uh, unfortunate posturing uh, in this conversation that uh, is not helpful. Um, and uh, I, from what I know about this situation, there have been multiple iterations of it, and I'm not revisiting uh, old situations because I don't think it's particularly useful to try to thread narratives uh, for things that have unique circumstances in this case. So since we spent so much time talking about this, uh, uh, there have been various overtures to involve multiple individuals in uh, bringing awareness to this situation. And it certainly has evolved over time. Uh, this contract negotiation has been going on for well over a year uh, and unfortunately did not work out in the way in which uh, not just Dr. Ingenio, but the rest of us have been. Uh, and it came down to the wire. And when it came down to the wire, the organization, under the leadership of clinicians who were involved in this situation at whatever juncture they got involved, but were involved at this particular juncture, made the advisable decision, and this isn't just physician leadership, uh, it's also physicians who practice within those facilities and understand this service. And this um, uh, decision was driven both by uh, needs for access, quality, and finances, all of which we have to consider and balance. And so respectfully, um, there will be decisions made oftentimes. Um, uh, there won't be situations where everyone will agree. But at the end of the day, I think what's important is, Dr. Jamalian pointed out, is we uh, continue to have and hope to continue to have the services of Dr. Ingenio and his group to serve the community at both of these facilities in ways that we hope they'll continue to do, just not in this particular service. And we've made provisions to continue to provide this service at all of these organizations in a way that ensures quality, that ensures access, and that ensures that our finances are balanced. So. I think it's probably not a healthy thing to continue this discussion at this particular juncture, but if people want to discuss it offline, be more than happy to do that. Yeah, no, I'm going to go ahead and say that, we're, that, that 
I'd like to close this discussion and, and just maybe, um, you know, there are contracts that, are, that do come to the board that we vote on and that we can discuss. Um, there are a lot more that really don't rise to the level of, of having Board of Trustee oversight. And to Trustee Shaquan's uh, point, our time is not well used in that. Um, also, having said that, I think that this board structure, and I'll work with Dr. Bouquet further around um, really wanting to hold some integrity around um, the medical staff reports and make sure that we are lifting up issues that are truly around uh, patient quality and safety um, and, and try not to get too far out of the bounds of those and understanding there are a lot of other conversations that need to happen um, sort of offline. Um, but definitely want to respect both Dr. Engineer and Dr. Marzouk's points around the way that communication happens. Um, and so wanting to lift that up sort of as a bigger picture uh, item for this board, I think, um, in, in conjunction with sort of the committees um, to be to consider that, the, that this is something that does come up often and change management and, and just wanting to make sure that we're doing our best in those areas. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that there uh, and move us on in the agenda. Um, so I guess it's, I guess I'll keep talking. Um, I'm getting a lot of background noise, so if folks could please mute themselves if they're not talking. Thank you. So, um, yeah, thank you, trustees. Thank you, guests, um, for being here this evening. Um, this is obviously an incredible time to be in healthcare. Um, an incredible time to be in the safety net. Um, I keep saying it feels like a sprint and a marathon and a roller coaster ride kind of all rolled up into one. Um, and I think we're all moving really, really fast. Um, and obviously tensions are, are, are very high. And I just, um, I, I feel like I start a lot of meetings just saying, let's all make sure that we're just having grace and understanding for one another that I think everyone is probably working harder than ever, <laughs> um, in all of our respective areas. Um, and that obviously stakes are very high. And so, and, and this is something that I know we're all, so passionate about um, the health and safety of our community and of, and of our staff. Um, just want to really express deep gratitude for all of the staff and all of the leadership of Alameda Health System and really of, of, the, of the entire safety net and including all of our frontline workers in all areas that are serving us during this time when when um, many folks are, are sheltered in place, um, we have um, people, um, many in our system, putting their bodies and their lives on the line every day um, to get us through this uh, safely. Um, and I know I can speak um, as for, for all the trustees that um, the health and safety of our staff um, and of, of their respective families um, is, is paramount to us. And it's something that I think is, is, is all, always on our mind. Um, so today, uh, to this evening in our agenda, we'll be hearing updates um, on the Joint Commission uh, report and response. So looking forward to, to hearing about that as that's obviously um, a, a huge area of concern um, and interest for all of us, um, as well as our, our pandemic response and some updates from, from Incident Command. Um, and so I think, you know, I'll echo what I think Dr. Ballard spoke of is that I do think we're at a time of great potential. Um, we are sharpening a lot of our tools. We are aligning in a lot of areas and having conversations across a lot of areas um, that I think um, are, are welcome and needed. Um, search planning and, and being prepared and, and all of those items. Um, the, the topic around self-care and resilience, I love. I think we are building ourselves to be more resilient um, and coordinated on the other side of this. 
And so um, just looking forward to um, strengthening our partnerships um, and also our, our internal communication, but also, again, wanting us to have grace and understanding for one another that uh, things will get dropped, um, you know, things will, things will lapse. And I think as long as we continue to center our patients, our population, our staff, um, we are going to get out, get through this um, stronger on the other side. And so with that, I would like to um, move on to the CEO report. Delvecchio. Thank you, uh, Trustee Avalada, and thank you, uh, Trustees, uh, uh, as always, uh, for your uh, service uh, to this organization and, and to this community. Um, I want to start just about every uh, Zoom. It seems like I can only talk to folks on Zoom these days. So uh, really nice to see you, and I hope you are social distancing and protecting yourself and, and your families as well. Uh, but I want to start by thanking uh, our, our staff and providers. Uh, just as Dr. Uh, Dr. and Trustee Apollotis said, uh, uh, just really heroic and um, uh, awe-inspiring uh, um, uh, efforts on the part of everyone here across all of our different services, ambulatory, uh, emergency, inpatient, uh, behavioral health, uh, post-acute, and SNFs and ARU, and all across our organization, really just amazing, amazing work uh, serving our community. And I couldn't be prouder of, of everyone here uh, for really stepping up and serving this community at a time when, when we're called on, on the most. Um, I also want to thank the trustees. I know you, uh, in addition to supporting all of our, our efforts here, um, uh, are advocating in the community for resources. You are donating yourselves. Many of you have uh, donated to our foundation uh, in support of the workforce, and I want to thank you for that. You've helped to find donors in your respective organizations in the community to donate uh, to support the organization and your continued advocacy uh, for other aspects, uh, because while this is so all-consuming, uh, we appreciate that other things are still happening with respect to quality with respect to finance with respect to engagement and a whole host of other things uh, relations with our stakeholders and the like so i want to thank you uh, really and also um uh probably not on the call but we really should and i want to share with you that we've just had an amazing outpouring of support from the community uh and donors which again i mentioned you have helped with but uh, our foundation uh reported uh raising uh, over $700,000 or $700,000 uh, in total in terms of including cash, a lot of cash, and also in-time uh, donations of PPE and other sorts of contributions to our organization. Happy to share, even just as late as uh, yesterday and uh, in the past week, we've gotten uh, donations of iPads uh, from uh, benevolent donors that some of our staff actually helped to facilitate, which we appreciate. Um, uh, PPE and food, uh, you may have heard uh, Marshawn Lynch, Beast uh, Mode really uh, came through with 10,000 um, surgical masks that were donated uh, to the organization. Uh, we had the Oakland East Picture donating food at Alameda Hospital, uh, restaurant tours and others in San Leandro donating PPE and, and meals to staff there and really just all across the organization. So impress impressive and um, uh, encouraging uh, outreach and, and pouring of support for our, our healthcare heroes. Um, I want to um, lift up uh, one thing that uh, others will lift up probably later too, but uh, just some amazing high quality care that's being provided that you should be very aware of. Um, uh, we've had, uh, as you know, a lot of uh, positive, uh, we've tested a lot of people. I think as of yesterday, over 700 uh, individuals have been tested at CUIs here in our organization. 
uh, within that number, um, uh, just about 80 or so uh, positive results, so a, a little over uh, uh, 10%. Um, uh, and actually, there are a few pending, but that's uh, our net um, number uh, thus far. Uh, and we've uh, had 17 patients uh, uh, currently in-house. We've had as high as uh, 24, I think, uh, across our system uh, uh, in-house at any given time. Uh, so I really want to thank uh, the staff for the incredible work there. Um, we have lost lives, as you know, across our country and uh, in our organization. And for a number of weeks, we were fortunate that of our positive cases who were in our ICUs and inpatient settings, we had not lost any lives. Uh, uh, that's no longer true. And we mourn uh, and celebrate the lives of those individuals who, we, who have uh, uh, passed along as a result of this uh, pandemic and this virus. Um, at the same time, I, I would be remiss if I didn't really, again, uh, honor uh, the incredible work by our, our clinical staff here. Uh, all but one, we've had, I think, to date about five uh, deaths in the organization. And of those deaths, only one uh, was not a DNR. So uh, four of those deaths were uh, patients with um, uh, do not resuscitate orders, uh, so uh, respecting their wishes, uh, uh, not um, uh, exhausting measures to them alive, uh, but of those, um, only one did not have that. So just really incredible work for the folks here taking care of them, uh, in some cases, fairly uh, sick uh, patients. So I want to I want to thank them. Uh, as you know, in our SNES, um, uh, we've been surveyed uh, from the CMS uh, via the state, I believe. Um, uh, and in all of our SNES and uh, post-acute facilities, they have really lauded the efforts that uh, the team there, the leadership, the clinicians, our providers there, have placed, put in place to protect our patients and to protect our staff. Um, here to date, we have had no staff, in, or I'm sorry, no patients in any of our field nursing facilities, I believe, uh, who have tested positive. And I think in only one site that we have one staff who's tested uh, positive. Uh, that is really, really impressive. As you know, uh, we've had uh, outbreaks uh, amongst our SNF populations who are quite vulnerable uh, around the county, around the Bay Area, and around the country. Uh, so really a uh, testament to the high-quality work and the uh, uh, safe efforts of the staff in our school nursing facilities to uh, protect our, our patients and, and to protect our staff. Uh, fortuitously, uh, and again, through great work on the staff, we've not had um, uh, any uh, positive patients in our behavioral health uh, setting in John George, which would be a tremendous uh, uh, burden on not just the organization but the entire community. Uh, so we really uh, agree with what's being done there uh, and the partnership we have with uh, the county and others who are helping um, in some ways to advance that effort. Um, I think we'll hear a little bit more about that later, so I'll, I'll cut short. Um, again, as I said, uh, so much more is going on. Um, uh, COVID-19 has really been uh, very consuming, but there's so much more in the organization. And uh, as the Finance Committee knows, and I'll just touch briefly, we've sent a letter to the county. Um, um, forecasting a potential challenge with our ability to meet the net negative balance for this year. Uh, we already knew next year would be a challenge and we have invoked the part of the uh, permanent agreement that requests a meeting uh, with the county to start to uh, strategize and plan together for that. So we look forward to hearing back and, um, and being able to have that conversation. And I want to thank the uh, trustees, uh, particularly Trustee Sequin, Trustee Abelada, and Trustee Peterson for um, uh, stepping up and uh, your willingness to help to uh, um, participate in those efforts and those discussions with our county partners. Um, survey readiness, again, uh, Dr. Um, 
um, uh, Hussein will talk about this briefly, uh, but we are continuing to have as much focus as we can on that. And uh, to, um, I'll pivot from there to the next uh, uh, point uh, about um, a lot of the discussions are happening outside of our organization and only slightly within our organization about what is what is the world look like for us in not necessarily a post-COVID environment, I'm not sure that exists. Uh, but in a world where we're on the other side of a curve and we're trying to determine what that is. Um, we've gotten prognostications that it could have been as early as last week to it can still happen at the end of June. So uh, not really sure where that is. We continue to um, uh, source as much external expertise as we can so that we can plan accordingly. Uh, but there is a lot of discussion around uh, when do we start to lift some of the public safety measures, when do we begin to um, restart elective surgical procedures and the like, and what are some of those conditions uh, that would um, dictate when an organization is ready to do so. So uh, we, uh, the only active steps we uh, have uh, taken thus far in that space is uh, our, our command center has been um, seven days a week, uh, 12, hours, 12 hours a day staff, uh, and then uh, 12 hours on call. Uh, we made a decision yesterday to take that to three days a week, and uh, that is largely to open up the bandwidth for us to begin to have active dialogues at a leadership level and with stakeholders on uh, what a post-COVID environment looks like. We are going to continue to advocate for expanded testing because we believe that's very pivotal uh, to our ability to protect uh, our community and our patients. Uh, we're going to be looking at our um, continued ability to have uh, PPE, uh, ICU, negative pressure um, uh, rooms, um, and uh, ventilators so that if we were to unfortunately experience an outbreak uh, or a second wave or third or whatever uh, may be coming, uh, that we are very cautious about moving forward, uh, while at the same time, as has been stated before, uh, really trying to lean in and leverage some of the advances we've been able to make in terms of telemedicine, in terms of throughput, in terms of rounding and other sorts of things that we've been able to do in terms of changing our business practices that will help us to uh, be a more agile, to be a more responsive, to be a higher performing organization uh, on the other, other side of this. So uh, more to come. And um, again, thank you for all of your support. And I'll pause now for any questions or uh, concerns you may have for this or anything else I did not mention. So I'm going to use the time for something a little bit different, short, right after this. So QPSC met on March 26th uh, of this year. As everyone knows, that was right in the center of when we were uh, we, we were right in the middle of it, and we're still continuing. So this was actually the shortest QPC, QPSC we've ever had. It was only a one-hour meeting. We did standard uh, credentialing uh, and the like. 
We discussed, we did our QPSC reading club. We discussed two articles, how to motivate your team during crunch time. I'd encourage us all to reread that article. And then, uh, and then another one, how boards can take the long view, um, uh, especially in light of COVID-19. The long and short of it were, were, were things like empathy <laughs> and, and patience and caution and, and uh, trying to avoid the negativity bias if you can, because, man, it's easy to go there uh, right now for, for all of us. So with that, I'm just going to tell a brief little story to try to give us some balance because we've heard a lot of not good things, and I want to tell a, a good moment that I had today. Um, today, I was in the uh, Alameda Hospital ICU, and I'm caring for one of the patients in there, and there was another patient, and I saw Dr. Lowry, and the patient I'm caring for and the other patient, they're, they're, they're both about to pass. And um, as everyone knows, we have a no-visitor policy. And uh, you can imagine the this, this stress on the family um, uh, when their loved one is imminently about to pass. And, man, uh, and there were, these were two huge families. When I pulled into the hospital, the parking lots were practically, uh, they, were, they were brimming with people. And uh, I, I don't know the detail of how it occurred, but what I saw was Ronica Shelton, uh, the VP ambulatory, finding a way to make this work. I was actually trying to talk to Ronica on another issue. She's like, Dr. Buchanan, I got to get these families to their, to their loved ones. She found a way around that policy um, to, to, to do that patient centeredness thing. And of course there was crying in the halls and what have you, but, but uh, man, it, it, it was, it was such the right thing to do. And it, uh, I know we're in a bad place with a lot of things, but that, that, uh, that, that gave me a little bit of hope, and boy, could we all use a little bit of hope, right? It, it, was, it was a very empathetic moment. It was the P of steep that I keep talking about. It was, there was nothing more patient-centered than that, than to go around a policy to make sure that that patient was surrounded by their loved ones, and it was patient and family-centered. And, 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 and uh, I'm going to choose to make that my moment for the day rather than some of the other things we've heard. Um, and not to ignore those things, um, but 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 we're in a tough time right now. So with that, I'll end my report. Thank you. You're muted again. <laughs> Sorry. Any questions for Trustee Bouquet? Thank you for that, Dr. Bouquet. Just one, one, one small uh, point of order, but, uh, and actually, I just want to thank—I I also want to thank you for the story and and the uh, the, the the bright light. I agree uh, that we we need more of that, particularly now. So I hope that we can all find that. Um, um, I do believe that uh, the, the policy, uh, not just for the organization, but we're following what happens statewide, does allow. Uh, for um, extraordinary circumstances uh, in, the, in the event of uh, something like a, a death uh, uh, for um, uh, families or visitors to be accepted in that case. So I appreciate that Ronica is doing that, and I, too, was uh, interacting with her today, too, so I, I can echo your sentiment that she uh, uh, has been very uh, active over there as a DP of patient care services. So I uh, want to lift her up, but also thank you for that as well. Thank you. Thank you. Is that a hand? Any other questions, comments on TPSC? All right. 
Jesse Chiquin, you're at Finance Committee. It's it's an interesting time to try to report out on finances, uh, but I'll, re- I'll start by reporting out what was given to us at Finance Committee, which is uh, finances through February, which feels like it should be BC and AD time, right? It's a it was a whole <laughs> different era. Um, so it, it the good news is that we passed a budget and we've been living within it. Um, our EBITDA margin uh, is above the budgeted amount uh, through February. <laughs> so um, to the to, to uh, Trustee Bouquet's theme, let's celebrate the positives. Um, that is positive. The other very positive, and I, I want to give kudos to um, our CFO Kim and her staff around the revenue cycle and cash collections. There are significant improvements uh, happening there. There's a lot of work still to do, and she'll be the first to tell you that, Uh, but uh, a lot of really hard focused work is starting to pay off, and if you remember that uh, that issue um, is a legacy issue for the organization, but on top of that is Epic, Sapphire, and and the fact that uh, we're, uh, you know, you you put this uh, very sophisticated electronic health record in place, and you have to sort of figure out the kinks, uh, and, and, uh, and there are many of them, <laughs> so, as, as, I've, uh, as we've heard in, in the finance committee, uh, many of them in terms of the stream towards getting cash back. Um, so, that's, uh, so that was the first part of the finance committee report, and then um, the, the bad news is that uh, given uh, where we expect to be at the end of the year, uh, we're going to be over the net negative balance. Um, my recollection is uh, nineteen around nineteen million dollars over um, expected. That's a projection. You know, a lot of moving pieces going on right now, um, and uh, our waiver situation has been pushed into next year. Staff might. Uh, it would be great if they could update us um, on the uh, state's um, communication regarding the waiver. Um, it, it's going to be pushed out uh, further than, than initially requested, requ- initially uh, uh, reported. That, that's my recollection. But anyway, it's going to come most likely next year, and it's a significant uh, amount. And so that was part of the letter that uh, uh, President and uh, CEO sent to, um, <clears throat> to the auditor controller of the county. We're waiting to hear back from them to set that meeting up. Um, finally, uh, and so that's a massive challenge in its own right. That's our cash flow challenge. That would be enough. But uh, we are now headlong into the budget planning uh, period. Very difficult, I just want to acknowledge, for staff to do when they're in the middle of a major pandemic uh, response. Um, but they're working on it. The initial report from our CFO is that our initial hole is $65 million negative. And if you remember right, it uh, we always want to have some EBITDA uh, margin on top of that. Um, so, uh, you know, you take a very conservative EBITDA of 2%, uh, that we're 85 um Eighty-five million. I want to say thousand. <laughs> Eighty-five uh, million in the hole, 
uh, to start with. Now, of course, that's very preliminary. There are a lot of assumptions we've got to go through. But I have to tell you, what makes me very nervous is um, that um, that number does not bake in what's happening right now with uh, tax revenue and supplemental income, uh, other shoes that might fall on the supplemental income side. So, for example, my favorite uh, uh, example is Measure A. And, uh, you know, I've been saying this for a while. I hate to say I'm right, particularly in this case. But um, we projected $125 million would be deposited uh, for AHS from Measure A. Um, you can imagine since uh, March, when, I think it was the 16th, whenever we went into shelter-in-place, uh, revenue sales tax has uh, significantly decreased. Um, and... It's hard to know what that is. We haven't gotten reports yet, I don't believe. Staff can clarify that uh, for us when they get to their report. But the bottom line is that's just one source. Um, Alameda County is going to be under incredible pressure. They have a combination of uh, property tax, sales tax, and other tax tax sources that make up um, the county's budget. All of those will likely... um, be diminished, uh, some of them quicker than others. Uh, I read an article on property tax that suggested that's the next, uh, there will be a, a settling out on the value of property, probably in places like the Bay Area where there's a lot, been a lot of inflation, and that will potentially impact a property tax collection. But uh, either way, there's a significant impact coming the county way. The county has been uh, very fiscally responsible the way it's been managing its dollars for years. There is some sort of reserve uh, for a rainy day. If this isn't a rainy day, I don't know what is, but they're going to get hit from every side. So we're going to need to collaborate very carefully with the county uh, moving forward on the budget. And the message I want to send tonight to my wrap-up here around the budget is that um, I referred to the multiple sacred cows that we have. And I, I continue to see, uh, you know, good-hearted people around me in the system not wanting to make uh, anything go away, have anything go away. But we have got to somehow figure out how to get to a balanced budget with some modest uh, margin on top of that. So if things get worse, we can... Uh, have a little bit of room to respond to. We're going to have some extremely difficult choices. We need to keep quality at the top. We need to keep equity, particularly racial equity, at the top of our values. And um, in order to do that, we can't keep everything. Um, that's going to be, I'm not talking about any specific program tonight, but it just doesn't work. We're at the point where it ain't going to work anymore, folks. So we got to stay real close to our values, um, and and I'm not saying the, the the two values I named are are the only ones, but to me those are the top two: quality and racial equality. Um, but we've got really hard decisions uh, to make, and um, good luck to us. That's my report. Would you like me to make a few comments as well? Please. 
I'll just add a few things to to what has already been shared. Um, yes, February was a, a good month. Um, our charges were 10.8% over budget. We had strong volume, and we also had uh, more surgeries and a higher CMI and reduced a lot of the pending charges in the revenue cycle. So kudos to uh, a lot of the uh, actual departments providing patient care as they push through those pending claims in EPIC. Uh, our cash did improve. Uh, it was already discussed, but we're now at 92.5% of net patient revenue. So still shy, but just making continuous improvement. If you looked at the graphs, you can see some huge days of cash posting. So uh, really nice to see. Year to date, uh, we are favorable, 28.1 million. Want to remind everybody that 23 million of that is a timing difference for the retro payment for be, for behavioral health services from the county. We budgeted that in June, so it's uh, just a timing difference. 23 million. We also had a positive um, settlement for the FY08 waiver, so that's the real driver behind the positive variance. Other than that, we're actually pretty close to budget. Cash flow is the big issue. Um, in the report, there is a revised cash flow. Um, lots of things are changing, and there's lots of unknowns. And I'd really like to just take a couple minutes to talk about a few of them. Uh, right now, I have us taking a cash flow hit of $17 million for the pandemic. I have no idea what that number is going to be. I based it on nine weeks that we're going to be successful in flattening the curve and we will not have to do a surge plan. Granted, yes, we should get some funding back to help us. I have no idea when. We did receive $10 million. That's very positive. I don't believe that we will have to pay anything back. The main uh, stipulation there is that we do not charge our patients any more than they would have paid if they were in network. And so we've been doing a lot of work in Epic to try to make sure that does not happen so we won't have an issue keeping those funds. Measure A, it's already been talked about. Um, the one thing I do want to say is we were $6 million ahead of our $117.7 million budget. Um, that average is out to about $9.8 million a month. In February, before the shelter-in-place started, we dropped to 8.1, and that so that's even before the shelter in place. I don't have any uh, March numbers yet, but looking at February, we're going to eat up that favorable variance. So I may have been too positive in my cash flow, thinking that we would at least make budget. Joint commission. Um, we know we've got some work to do. We've got some furniture to replace. We've got some beds at John George. We've got a lot of cleaning to do. Um, I put a million dollar placeholder. I could be could be a good number, could be a bad number. We don't know yet. Um, our philanthropic activity, uh, we're ten million behind plan. We did not get one of the donations that we had thought we would get. So, um, you know, we 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 did get some, but not the thirteen million that we originally had uh, projected. So we've we've got a, a gap a deficit there. 
And uh, basically the net of just those, there's several other things on my list, but they kind of net out. You can look at them. I'm happy to answer questions, but those are the big ones I went over. That leaves us uh, with a deficit of $19.2 at June 30. Then if you go on to FY21, um, just quickly, you all ought to remember the prior year recruitments. I haven't changed those. I've left those on the balance sheet untouched. Um, the only item that was uh, deferred was the physician spa. That was $30 million. My understanding now that reconciliation for that will not be for another couple of years. So I took that liability off. That's $30 million less. The other recruitments totaled 152.4. That's nothing new. Those are the old waivers, the cost reports, the FQHC. Um, and then I see a budget gap in our supplementals, which is $18 million. So you add that up, and we're going to be at a shortfall next year of $194.6 million. Um, as was reported, I do have some good news. Uh, the CAPH is revising all of the prior year waivers, the P14 audits have been completed. I don't, I can't give you absolute numbers, but I know it's a positive impact. So far, we still have two more years to to get feedback from CAPH on. So, not ready to report, but I know it's going to be a positive number. So that's good. But regardless, we're still over our NNB by 194.6 next year. Yes, our budget is in process. Um, as a reminder, our guiding principle is stabilization and continuous improvement. We set our target equal to our 2019 calendar EBITDA. That would be to bring in $30 million extra dollars from operations to pay for the pension obligation bonds and to do some capital investment. But we can't are not able to generate uh, margin to repay the supplementals from many years ago, we would have to make you know drastic changes to the operations to do that, which was not one of the guiding principles that we uh, enacted this year. Um, my final comment is on the revenue cycle. I'm not going to make too many comments here because we are continuing to improve. However, our charges dropped 30% since the shelter in place took uh, took hold. And when you drop 30% of your charges, it skews all the metrics. So rather than sit here and tell you, oh, we're doing even better, I'm not going to do that. And we did not restate all the metrics. So um, the good news is, yes, cash is coming in. That cash is king. That's what we need to focus on. But this 30% drop in charges is going to have a huge impact to us. I estimated, as I told you, nine weeks and a ramp up of getting some patients back. We'll see how I did. Okay. So those are my comments. If anybody has more questions, I'm happy to answer. Hey, just to clarify, um, am I, can you hear me? I can. Okay, good. Uh, just to clarify, the um, the thirty the nine weeks of uh, diminished operating re uh, revenue is related to clearing the hospital of electric uh, elective surgery and uh, and yeah. people in hospital beds. Is that? Yeah, there were three items. There was about $1.5 in IT costs and supplies. 
and then there was some additional staffing required and then 15 million was a result of lost revenue because our census has been you know very well 30 percent less of charges originally um we started off about 25 percent that's 3.1 million a week in lost net lost net revenue and we're not able to flex off everywhere. And with the incident command center going, our staffing levels have stayed pretty high. Again, I want to make it clear that that, that that was a prudent move made by the system to prepare for a surge in patients who were positive. Oh, yes, absolutely. I, you know, we had no choice to not to to uh, shut down for most elective cases and to um, be prepared for a COVID surge. Okay. I, have a I did have a question. Oh. Um, can, can I just ask one quick question? Sure. Is, is there an estimate of the cost of um, the added supplies that are needed for um, everything from PPEs to the, I guess we needed to also get some uh, ventilators. Do you have any estimate about that particular cost? I I just did a ballpark estimate in this analysis, and I don't have it updated, mostly because we haven't gotten all of the invoicing in. I mean, you got to remember, all of this has only been going on for four weeks. Of course. So what's been really interesting, though, is most of our normal supply chain um, uh, has ha has been able to help us, but they have had shortages, and we've had to go use other vendors, and those vendors are asking things like 50% deposit up front, the prices are higher, and then when we actually get the items, it might not be a f the full amount, so then we have to deal with how much more do we owe. We, we might have given them 50%, maybe we get 70% of the order. Mm -hmm. So all of this is happening in the background. Right. Um, so it's, it's, I know our procurement team has been stretched um, to the max. I, they, my hat goes off to them because they are working so hard to make sure that we have everything we need in-house. Yeah, and, and I did hear uh, among not not just AHS but others um, that there's fraud out there. I mean, people are basically selling things that aren't uh, to code or standards or what have you. So it's just such a nightmare. So thanks, Kim. Thank you. You're welcome. I just wanted to ask, um, uh, we didn't just cancel uh, elective procedures at the hospital. I, I, I'm just curious about the impact at our, at our primary care sites, ambulatory. I mean, all of that has taken a huge uh, volume loss, correct? You are correct. Um, however, with telemedicine and phone consults, we may not get paid the same amount. All of that's kind of still to be determined. We had to build out a whole new set of codes within EPIC to bill for, you know, telemed and, and, and phone consults. So all of that is the net increase is yet to be determined, but I know that we did lose a lot of elective or, or visits from patients. So it's a little early for me to report back on it because we had to build all those codes and then get all the charges out, but I should have some really good information very soon from Epic. They've built a whole set of reports. I looked at them for the first time today 
they were good, but they had errors in them. So they were going to go back and, and, and you know, um, take my feedback and other feedback and get them put together for us. And they won't just be for us. They'll be for all Epic users. They're actually pretty good, just not quite ready yet for prime time. Can I uh, just jump in real briefly um, uh, and just give a, a real kudos to uh, Kim and her, her team, too. Uh, uh, trustees, you should know that uh, in addition to uh, just trying to support our, our response and our surge activities, um, we are busily um, uh, both working with our PACE team and other parts of the organization to advocate for various fun, uh, sources of uh, funding relief at the mainly at the federal level, but also uh, at the state level and a little bit to the uh, local level too. Uh, and um, as those dollars are coming forth, whether they're through the CARES Act or through other sources, uh, uh, they are uh, having to track these things, having to pursue the dollars. Uh, some of that I think she referenced in some of her um, uh, reports, the $10 million that we've gotten, uh, that was uh, um, actually a fairly straightforward effort uh, in terms of getting the dollars, but then some work downstream to monitor it and retain it. Uh, we're expecting the second, uh, they call them tranches of dollars uh, for those uh, uh, purposes. And then the last, let's say, uh, we're uh, looking for different funding sources, too, that uh, may not necessarily readily look available to us, but we're pursuing them. And, one of those with our strategy team, the IT team worked, and we, are, we uh, filed a grant with the uh, FCC, the um, uh, Federal uh, Communications, uh, um, I forget what it is, FCC. Uh, uh, but we're at, uh, looking for dollars to support our IT infrastructure, to support telemedicine, and uh, our care sort of transitions in that space as well. So uh, there's a lot of uh, work that we're doing, not just to kind of catalog these things and, and to advocate uh, at a local level, but uh, Kim and her team and uh, some of the rest of the organization have really been active in helping to try to pursue those dollars uh, um, uh, very uh, actively. So just thought you should know that. Thank you. Other questions for Trustee Shaquan or for Kim on finance? All right, do we have a report on the Alameda Hospital Seismic Planning Ad Hoc Committee? Uh, we, Trustee Peterson. Yeah, we, we put off our meeting for last month because of the COVID break. And the plan, the plan is that we're meeting in the middle of this month and we should be getting back to the board at our next trustee meeting with uh, more company. Okay. Okay. Thank you. All right. Moving us to the consent agenda. Do I have a motion to approve? We have approval of the minutes, ratification of the action taken by the executive committee, um, approving correspondence with Supervisor Chan, and adoption of a resolution approving the Alameda County Behavioral Healthcare Services Agency contract signature authorization form. Motion to approve. Second. Okay, I had a motion from Trustee Bouquet and second by Trustee Hernandez. Did I get that right? All those in favor? Aye. Aye. <laughs> Any opposed or abstain? Thank you. Motion carries. And just, and just to be clear, motion carried unanimously, so that substitutes for having to take an actual roll call vote. Thank you. 
All right, moving us to item F. We have F1 regulatory affairs update, um, status of corrective, corrective actions related to the Joint Commission survey findings, um, Dr. Zuket and Hussein. Actually, Dr. Hussein. <laughs> Dr. Hussein. <laughs> Good evening, trustees. Um, I have to start just by saying that it, <laughs> It's been actually a quite moving uh, and humbling experience to be uh, on QPSC and um, this Board of Trustees meeting this afternoon. I think an evening, I think there, we're in a situation when um, there's not an abundance of data um, and how we handle COVID, there's more uncertainty than usual. And um, that means that we have to uh, dig deeper and be even more grounded and identifying what are our principles that are going to drive our decisions. And, and I just want to just take a moment to thank you all for your leadership and, and, and inspiring me to reflect more deeply on those things. Um, and that means that comes with more passion, that comes with more conversation, and sometimes um, more opportunity to dialogue with each other. And we're not always going to agree, um, but there is significant value um, and substance and having a culture that allows learning and those dialogues. Um, and then before I joined, jump into the Joint Commission uh, update, I do want to share um, in the Vayner Regulatory Affairs, I wanted to acknowledge that um, in addition to the Joint Commission work happening, um, uh, particularly in the post-acute sector with our skilled nursing facilities, um, they've been under um, a lot of scrutiny from CMS to ensure that the appropriate infection control procedures and practices and policies are in place. And I just want to take a moment to recognize our uh, post-acute team that uh, completed four surveys just uh, effortlessly and smooth. Well, not effortlessly. They made it look effortless, um, but were um, so successful. Um, and also kudos to another important congregate setting um, at John George, where we have a lot of vulnerable patients um, that are very susceptible to an outbreak. And, and their um, things have been uh, um, expertly run as well. And then the other uh, regulatory uh, update I want to give you before I get into the Joint Commission a triennial is that uh, we were successful in um, being recertified at Alameda Hospital as our uh, certified stroke center there. So with that, um, uh, let me uh, give you um, a further report on the uh, Joint Commission triennial survey. So I tried to keep the executive summary brief because I know you had the... Um, at the pleasure of skimming or reading the 106-page um, evidence of standard correction that was submitted uh, to the Joint Commission. So I didn't want to give you yet another uh, set of PowerPoint slides and report to review. Um, but uh, that, that product um, was truly uh, a collaborative effort through multiple uh, layers, uh, including the frontline employees who do the work, their immediate supervisors and managers, their directors, their uh, VPs and CAOs, um, and the entire report was also reviewed uh, by our, by Del Vecchio, Luis, Gassan, um, um, and um, although not uh, the final step, a very important step that our evidence of standards correction were accepted uh, eight days after submission on the 14th of April without a single clarification um, or, or request for revision. I think, um, uh, you know, and that, that was, uh, that was a dif disciplined exercise. There were lots of communications that were happening prior to the submission between the Regulatory Affairs Department um, and the Joint Commission. 
Um, but I think that is a very good signal um, that we came up with plans that address the um, immediate uh, immediate concerns. Um, but the more challenging piece of that corrective action plan uh, uh, with the conditional level findings and the 76 areas and the 106 observations was to, to produce something substantive enough, um, but not um, unexecutable, um, but substantive enough to address the Joint Commission's potential concerns around the root causes um, um, and, and, and inspire confidence that we had a plan um, in writing that had the potential of preventing repeatability. Um, of course, the work that lies ahead now is to execute on what we said we would do in the plan. Um, but I have uh, uh, faith uh, um, and confidence that due to the uh, uh, intense involvement of our operational leaders that we will move from a plan um, uh, uh, that is in writing and actually uh, has the immediate actions have all been implemented. Um, and now it's a question of making sure they get integrated into the day-to-day -day operations so that they are sustainable. But hope is, of course, not a strategy, um, and so there are a number of things that um, we will uh, do now to make sure that there's constant monitoring and sustainability of those actions. So um, a couple of things. Number one, um, for every single evidence of standard correction, um, the regulatory affairs team will now trans, now that we know it's been accepted, um, they are translating every single evidence of standard correction, the 76, to a checklist of uh, documents uh, that will populate our evidence binder. So that means that will be a way of tracking, um, is there evidence to show the Joint Commission when they come in a tangible way uh, that we did what we said we would do. So this includes education and training. It includes attestation of the completion of the education. It may include policies or procedures or memos. It would include checklists, audits, um, and data. So that is the uh, step that, that, that our, uh, the regulatory affairs team is working on. Um, I, uh, and we anticipate that that will be done by the end of next week. And uh, much of it has already started, uh, but we want to do that in a very systematic way. So that would be one way of monitoring to ensure we have evidence that those plans are uh, getting implemented. The second is that already um, a, a monitoring dashboard has been created, but a um, number of the findings require chart audits to validate that the work is being done. And so this week, the team has already, uh, the regulatory affairs team and quality team have met with operational leaders to, um, uh, to educate and train those people who will be doing chart audits the way that it should be done to make sure the documentation reflects the standards. Um, in addition to training the operational leaders who will be doing that, um, the quality team will also be doing a set of audits to ensure that there's inter-rater reliability. That is to say that, that the managers and operations who are managing and, uh, uh, and monitoring their own operations, that there's alignment with what the quality team is doing in terms of auditing. So that is uh, some, a high level in terms of the uh, monitoring plan um, and the data that we will begin uh, sharing uh, uh, with the board. Now, in the summary that I provided the board, um, I highlighted the elements that are uh, central to the governing body findings. Um, and, at, you know, at a high level, um, 
in QPSC, um, we uh, that in the patient safety report, uh, we uh, show the survey readiness checklist that's being done at every one of the facilities, John George, San Leandro, and Highland on a weekly basis that's accompanied by pictures and corrections. So that's happening on a weekly basis um, in terms of our governing body uh, finding. Um, education has been sent out and uh, um, from the Joint Commission to operational and physician leaders for completion so that, that there is clarity around what the elements of performance are. Um, additional resources, and now I'm just reading sort of through the highlight of the bullets on that report. Um, uh, you know, our operational leaders have assessed um, uh, um, where additional resources or staff are needed uh, to help in areas such as environmental services and or sterile processing, and that has happened. Um, there's been uh, uh, additional uh, re-education tools, processes um, implemented, particularly in the area of instrument reprocessing. Um, uh, and, and you see in the report all the different uh, individuals that were uh, a part of that. Um, other things to highlight, um, you know, uh, as part of the report that will occur uh, with the board, uh, that monitoring data will be shared with, um, in terms of our chain of command, with our ACMO, our CNE, who will review the data, identify what barriers there are to progress. That will be shared with our COO and CMO and CEO, um, presented to the executive leadership team and then QPSC or the board. Um, and then, uh, um, so I, I will, uh, and to ensure that we have time for your questions, I will leave it there and, and, and open to additional questions or remarks from our other leaders on the line. Um, uh, from Luis uh, Gassandro Del Vecchio, if they'd like to add further. Tanvir, um, yeah, thanks for that report. Um, just to, and, and I'll resummarize for everybody because that was a, there, there was a lot of information in there. Uh, but a question, um, our CFO, Kim Miranda, again, doing her best to work on estimates. She, and you heard in, in the finance report, she's allocated roughly a million dollars to address joint commission. I know you're not someone who looks at, at supply chains and the like, but what are your thoughts on, on that as a best guess? Oh boy, that's challenging. Um, I only ask good questions. <laughs> so, you know, I, um, I would have, uh, I know that part of the work that is, is happening um, is that the operations leaders are looking at the plans of correction and trying to identify what resources will need, be needed immediately and to sustain that. Um, I will tell you, um, in the preventative analysis, and, and I know that this is embedded and all the condition level findings um, in those 106 pages, and, and we've discussed this, Gasan uh, um, uh, Luis and myself and Del Vecchio, um, that when we look at what the common themes are in the preventative analysis, you know, the areas where um, to make sure these things are sustainable are to ensure that uh, we equip our um, staff um, who perform these duties with the knowledge they need to be successful, um, that, that we create um, tools for them on a daily basis to be able to make sure their work is standard. We create opportunities for enhancing uh, the knowledge around our policies and procedures and that leaders are, are helping drive those staff expectations. You know, um, 
connecting back to our prior conversation in QPSC about what are those elements that boards should think about, um, I think there is a, a you know conversation piece here about investment in human capital. Um, in addition to the capital investment that um, you know that might be quantifiable um, uh, in terms of dollars, so so I, I guess the way that I would answer that question is to say that I think it's more than the million dollars in capital investment, but also thinking about how do we how do we create that human capital investment as well. Yeah, but that costs money as well. So again, uh, let let me try to reframe it a little bit. So answer A. <laughs> it appears to be on the right scale. Answer B, I'm not sure I, this might be underscaled, or answer C, I have no idea. <laughs> Where along that spectrum might you sit? <laughs> uh, this is, this report, uh, you know, um, I don't know the answer to that. Um, and, and, and that's, and me, that's perfectly fair. It's a tough question. Yes. Let me say this, um, as we think about um, some of the dialogue that we've had today is, is um, that this is a pivotal point. Uh, we will make decisions that will, about our vision that will guide the structure of our organization and who we want to be. Yeah. And, and, I, and, and I think that's really important. Yeah. If uh, uh, we are demonstrating through the work that's happening right now, our capacity for excellence, and the investments we continue to make will only further drive that excellence and vision towards quality and safety if, so, if, if we continue to choose to do so. Nice dance. <laughs> um, uh, just in follow-up to Dr. Hussein, just to remind uh, the rest of the board, because not all of us sit on, on the QPSC, remember... The Joint Commission, it was a very intensive five-day survey from February 24th to 28th. It was challenging. Uh, it was, uh, uh, so, some have said it's, it's, it's the worst uh, TJC experience they've been through. I've heard a whole variety of things, but I, I want to talk about uh, kind of the three key points that I took that I was, thought I was going to give to the Board of Supervisors, but we got, we, we got sidetracked on other things. So number one, there were positives, and let's try to stick with that theme. Uh, it's important to note uh, that they were very complimentary, the TJC, about the following. Number one, medication management. Number two, data management. Number three, the medical staff. Uh, number four, the provision of care. I want to emphasize that there were no immediate threat to life findings. We are, these are sometimes termed as immediate jeopardy findings. We did not have any of that. Bullet point number two, there were significant negatives. 78 elements of performance were uh, cited. That's what uh, Dr. Hussein's talking about. He has, he and his team have to, each one of those is a small little book. Um, uh, so 78 books that uh, uh, Tanvir and his team have to write. Uh, this equated to, these 78 elements of performance equated to five condition of participation findings. Infection control, surgical services, environment of care, patients' rights, and governing body, which uh, at least on some element is us, the board of trustees. Key point number three, there is tremendous activity. Uh, uh, I, I, I know that Tanvir is not sleeping very much, and uh, yeah, and uh, you know, I'm texting him on Saturdays and Sundays, so um, you know, my kudos to him and his team. They submitted that 100x page report, and they, that was a, its own book, and, and to hear that there, there were not any responses to that response is actually great news and it's optimistic 
but there's a ton of work to do. And the cost in terms of the human capital that, that Tanvir's team has, tad, ha, has had to invest in this, it begs the question, what, what are we not doing so that we can do this? And then the money capital that we're going to have to do to kind of re-up our environment of care, our surgical services, infection control to get there. It, it, it's, it's a challenging moment. So uh, I'm going to go back and think about my positive story for a little bit. <laughs> So, uh, so I have a question. Um, you know, it seems to me. Tell me if my assumption's wrong. Uh, it seems to me this is not so much about money. It's not so much about um, well, other factors. It, it's really a cultural shift that gets this uh, system to a place where people care enough to see things when they're out of order. I'm I'm making this way too simple, but uh, when they see things that are out of order, they respond either directly or they put a process into order that that addresses the the problem. Does that make sense, Stanvir? I mean, this is a cultural shift that we need to make. That's my assumption. Am I on, off base? Or? The culture is part of it. I mean, um, I just noted some thoughts down. Um, so one is, um, I think we have to go back to some of the basics. During these conversations uh, with uh, the frontline staff um, and leaders, we need to, before we run, we have to make sure we can walk. And that means making sure our job descriptions are clear. People understand their, you know, as, as our organization, you know, as our healthcare is rapidly transforming, we need to constantly reassess that in that transformation, people don't lose sight of what their job is, what their fundamental roles and responsibilities are. And as they're asked to do more, some critical things are not dropping. So, that is so from a just culture perspective i have to ask the question is is it cultural but also structural mm-hmm. does our structure promote the culture we want mm-hmm. do we have structure and accountability that drives the culture we hope for um the other is uh, focus um sometimes we have to do less to do more and in our prior qpsc conversation we asked where do we have time to talk about some of these critical principles around quality and safety? Where are we making the time to do that? Either we have to create more time or reduce time in other areas so we can dig deep into the areas that we need to discuss. Because there's a time value of money. If we don't invest in it now, it catches up with us later. So when are we gonna make that investment around having the conversations we need to around quality and safety? And the other thing is alignment. So once we understand what these principles are, are we investing them in, in those things? Are we asking people to prioritize that work so that when we ask them to respond, we know that their, their, you know, their jobs and responsibilities allow them to respond in that timely fashion. We want them to things that are urgent around quality and safety and how we build the resources to allow that. Yeah, I'm actually- we have the resources to minimize 
you know, flash sterilization to, to so, I mean, it's, it's very complex, but once we figure out that this is our number one priority, we build a structure that allows have reliability on the execution of quality and safety. Um, and, and that has to be balanced with efficiency and volume. But it may not be possible to get volume and quality and safety. To say, I also wonder about how much um, this family's lack of trust of each other has to do with this. Because it takes a, this is really about an us all in and trusting each other. I just hear more and more sniping, attacking, uh, assuming the worst of people. Uh, I'm going to speak out as soon as I hear that in any future meetings, because I think that is deadly stuff towards this objective of trying to get to quality. We've got to, try, we've got to build trust somehow. You know, the, when, we're, when the patient safety team or the regulatory affairs team is called into complex situations, we... Around an event, we each experience that. Each of us experiences it differently. That doesn't necessarily make one's experience or perception more valid than the other, but that's where principles matter and objective processes and shared goals and visions that bring us together. And we can have diverse perspectives and views, but we need to be really clear that we have an objective process that will get us to what we need to achieve. Well said. I agree, Tim Beer. And, you know, I have to ask this question. Is the culture, because we all know culture eats strategy for lunch every day, mm -hmm. right? So is the culture at this time, at this moment, in such a place that it really is going to need to be the first thing we talk about. Um, I want to share something with all of you. I, I once had an experience working at a children's um, uh, site. Uh, it was a county site. And I, I had this experience of a new employee coming in and wanting to help with children who were um, under county supervision to, to help them with their homework. And this employee was new, and he said, um, you know, I love the kids. I want to make sure they're ready for school the next day, and, you know, we need to be, be here like their parents. And he told me, I can't do that in public anymore because the other employees are telling me that's not in your job description, mm -hmm. and you can't get paid for that, and you're making the rest of us look bad, especially those of us who are part of a, a bargaining unit. And... I got to tell you that within a very short amount of time, that employee was very different because nothing was done to correct the culture that talked about that kind of value system, those kinds of principles that put, you know, certain behaviors on the no list, you know, don't do list, when ultimately he was doing the mission of the organization, which is to take care of children who were in custody, out of their parents' care, and allowing them to have some semblance of a normal life. Are we at that place 
at Alameda Health System where the culture is not conducive to what we're being asked to do when it means providing quality of care to all. If that's, if that's what's going on, everyone, we really have to talk about that because no process, no rules, no procedure book, no policy is going to change that culture. We have to ask ourselves what kind of culture is necessary to build that kind of quality of care and talk about those rules of engagements, the values, the principles, as Tanvir has said, that are going to get us there. And that's really hard conversations to have. So, um, I, you know, I already talked to Terry about this. I'll, I'll talk to all of you about it later, but I, I volunteer to try and hold some sort of an open forum around that very topic when it comes to uh, the patient experience, the quality of care. We, we, we have to take that risk and ask really tough questions and be willing to say, this is what we stand for. This is what we believe. These are the values that every person needs to have as part of their job description. First and foremost, then come the tasks. Because I'd rather hire someone that's got the right attitude, the right spirit, the right beliefs about how to work in our place than someone that might not have the skill set. Because I can train for skills. I cannot train for values. I cannot train for principles, right? We have to have that very difficult conversation. And it almost feels like, you know, the pandemic and, and uh, you know, the Joint Commission visit have put us at a precipice. If we don't deal with this right now, we're never going to get this right. I, don't, I just don't know how else to say it. Um, we, we really have to turn the corner here. We're being asked to do something that perhaps has not been done for over 10, maybe 15 years here. But, but we don't have a choice. We better do it now or there's no return. Uh, can I just uh, say so thank you for the comments and, as always, insightful. Uh, uh, ten, uh, just to remind the board, um, we started this exact conversation uh, uh, pursuant to uh, other awareness around this matter uh, probably at the end of last year, going or the last calendar year, I should say. Uh, but but uh, in the January timeframe, you all will recall um, uh, that we engaged the uh, efforts of a of a uh, expert in this field uh, who does this work with healthcare organizations. Who we we took the approach of, of, of taking a very um, uh, thoughtful approach to this and engaging a lot of external stakeholders, not just the administration, to inform the 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 importance of doing exactly this work and that we have people who uh, saw this as uh, uh, the crux of our issue as well, that it wasn't about strategy, uh, that we certainly have some issues in the areas of finance and quality and operations, but uh, the values and the underlying sort of alignment that we don't have there is a very significant piece of this. And uh, we actually, again, timing is everything, uh, had just uh, finished that work. We had interviewed a lot of folks, including leaders of our medical staff, and um, uh, proceeded with a nice scope of work with this uh, uh, consultant who, who we brought on board to do this work, signed that contract, I believe, in early March. 
And here we are now because after early March, the cruise ship came and, and we've been uh, waylaid on both that work and as Trustee Hernandez uh, will appreciate the health equity, diversity, and inclusion work, which took a slower sort of downscaling, um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, but has unfortunately and really um, um, you know, regretfully taken a bit of a backseat while we deal with the surge response and the preparedness. The budget stuff has slowed down and the other pieces, but this underlying tenor, this underlying sort of sense uh, that is exacerbated by some major transitions that we uh, started before this that are coming to fruition, uh, labor contracts that are in the midst of us right now is just a unfortunate, perfect storm for this type of environment and not to mention a very unfavorable survey, which uh, uh, is uh, high on all of our minds. So I, I couldn't uh, agree more with all the sentiments that have been expressed here that we absolutely uh, need to do this work and I look forward to pivoting back to it. I uh, look forward to getting the support of uh, trustees, uh, particularly Trustee Hernandez, who's been uh, very encouraging and supportive of this work. Uh, we do need to get back to it, and I, I, I just I, I want to underscore that, but I want you to know it's not that we didn't hear you. It's not that we don't agree with it. We got relayed um, after spending about two and a half months of thoughtful planning around launching these series of town hall discussions with individuals, which is going to be tough to figure out how we do that in a post-COVID environment. Uh, too, but we are giving some thought to that. You know, it'll probably be a lot of these types of gatherings versus small group-based discussions, which we were angling to do, and that was a part of the contract and how we were going to proceed with trying to both finish the assessment, do some uh, readiness uh, planning around doing the work of changing the culture, which we realize is not, you know, it's not a snapshot, it's an ongoing thing, but we we're trying to get there. And our goal was actually, if you recall that, February strategy meeting was to have that work largely done, at least in terms of shaping it by the end of this uh, fiscal year. Now, uh, that's probably not likely anymore, but it doesn't in any way diminish the no, importance and the uh, insightfulness of what you said today. But, yeah. but, that, but that means we have started a process. So that's good. Let me ask you this, though, so, uh, to Trustee Hernandez's story, which I think is a really powerful one. I've I could cite similar stories. Uh, worked uh, with uh, government agencies for years, and, and I have had many of those stories. I'm wondering if this retention of this consultant involves doing an assessment of how ready we are at a ground level for quality. Is that is that what it involves? Um, quality, I will concede, probably uh, wasn't. Um the, 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 the core focus of it, it was around the, the, the values, right? So we were trying to make sure that values uh, and the values that we espouse in the organization, uh, which actually there is an element of uh, uh, one of our values is, is excellence, teamwork and commitment, uh, integrity and compassion are the others. And, and we wanted to really really uh, kind of unpack how much do our day-to-day -day actions and decisions and uh, things that we do in the organization uh, reflect those values, advance those values, or quite honestly, undermine those values. So, so I wouldn't say quality as a specific that's value. One, that's one it, but it yeah, that's a lot. Can I? Probably even even better, you know. But there is uh, several tools out there in the quality field. Tamir probably can speak to this. That will assess an organization's readiness to adopt quality as a premier value. And it might be good to add that to the practice. 
course. Yeah, I just wanted to make a comment. No, I, you know, this strikes me, at, you know, in having these discussions, looking at the results of not just the Joint Commission, but other surveys, um, as well as hearing from so many public speakers and speaking to so many people who work at AHS, that this is not a monolithic, I mean, we, we can't generalize about such a large system. Um, it, it never ceases to amaze me how many public speakers come up and say, I've worked here for 20 years, I've worked here for 30 years, I've worked here for 35 years. I mean, it's really incredible, right? And so, um, and, and, and to have, um, you know, some of the testimonies that I get by email from different departments, uh, women's health, the excellence, the quality that's going on in some of these departments, the frankly excellent surveys that we've had in some areas of the organization, and then obviously some that are very concerning and very challenging. And so I like Dr. Hussein's question about does the structure drive the, the, the culture that we want to see? Because I think that as we've gone towards trying to systematize, or I, I forget the word we try to use, but, but you know, um, systemness, I guess, um, to create that, that that has worked very well in some areas from what I hear, and this came from conversations with the medical staff leadership as well, and in some areas not, not so much. And that uh, that I would bet that the areas where not so much are the same areas that we're talking about here that have not done well from a quality perspective. And so I guess I would just urge us for one thing to sort of let's find the bright spots and lift those up. Let's find the challenging areas and see what needs to be done to solve those. But also with, a, with an organization of this size, I just I have to believe that there's more cross pollination that could be helpful, right, in terms of where are things going well and how do we cross-pollinate that to areas that, that aren't doing so well and try to really get to the bottom of this because I don't think that, uh, you know, as, as much as I'm really concerned about the, the JCO survey and very pleased that our, our, our corrective actions were, were accepted, um, I, I want to make sure, I mean, my, my biggest concern because I've been through so many of these in different locations is that, is, and I think to Trustee Hernandez and Trustee Shaquin's point, if we don't address the root causes, we're just going to end up back here again, right? And so, and 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 I'm I'm all for that. So, but I but I go back to what Dr. Hussain said about the structure and does the structure drive the culture we want to see? And so, I guess my question for us as trustees is sort of how do we make sure that our structure is also facilitating what we want to see? So, so as far as following up on 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 whatever is being implemented, right? How I mean, if we're already saying we're concerned that we're not sure we're addressing the root cause in some of these units, perhaps. And we put in correction, corrective actions, but we're already worried that we're just going to revert back um, because we haven't addressed root causes. What can we do in our oversight roles to ensure that we are tracking on this and we're monitoring this and we're making sure that we don't flip back? And so as much as I'm supportive of a sort of a broad, uh, a broad attempt to sort of bring in outside expertise, and I think we absolutely need to do that when the time is right, I also think we've got a lot to work with here. Um, and so I would just encourage us to do that. Yeah. That's a good point. Uh, yeah, can, can I make one last point about that? I would like to encourage you, Del Vecchio, Tanvir, Taft, all of you who are internal, um, it would be really good to highlight, find those employees that you believe are really living the mission of AHS, that really exemplify the values, that really stand up, stand out, and you know you have no doubt that they do the right thing when it's necessary. And I would encourage you to ask them, what empowers you to do that? And what barriers do you face when you try to behave that way? That's gonna tell you a lot 
because a lot of our attention sometimes goes to the folks that are giving us all this feedback about what's wrong, what's you know not working, and to know how's point, you got to find out. Well, how do the people that shine make it shine? How do the people that do well make things happen? Um, if we don't find out what's working and how they succeed at that, uh, we're missing an opportunity. And you got to ask, what makes it hard for you? Because that's going to be a really important way to find out where we need to dig in and fix the stuff that needs to be fixed. Sorry. I totally agree. I know. I know we're going to belabor this, and I, I, I'm, I'm mindful of the time. But let me share two points to that, uh, or uh, um, to that point, to further your point. Uh, one of the things that uh, Janet McKinnis and uh, uh, Dr. Tony Bennett, Felicia Tony Bennett, are doing, and this is with the support of Gasan and Luis, and they're absolutely in furtherance of our quality uh, journey that Tanvir is describing. Was uh, they are now uh, creating a poll, a set of questions that are going to be designed to talk to some of the um, physician uh, uh, administrator or physician nurse diet that we have across the organization and look at ones where we're struggling, but also look at ones where things are going quite well and start with it. What's, what, what is the secret to this sauce? What is, what is going so well here uh, that may be things that we can transport and maybe applicable in other settings? And have the converse conversation as well. So, so that's an endeavor that I'm really excited that they are pursuing, and look forward to taking getting some takeaways there. I'll tell you my own experience actually with our EVS workers and spending some time with them was uh, to exactly to your point. I had some people who, you know, I knew some staff were complaining about things like not having access. This is not about PPE, but about supplies and things like that that impact their ability to get their job done. I spent time one day with a guy who. Uh, I asked about that, and he said, you know, I hear people complaining about it, but I just make it work. You know, I just, I find where the people call me Mr. Resourceful. And I thought, really great, actually, and I appreciate that. Probably not going to learn as much from you about how to redesign our system, because you are making the system work for you, uh, but it's not, it's broken for other folks. So applaud his effort, but also needed to go and talk to other people who actually were saying, just not working for me and find out why that is the case. So I cannot, you know, you don't want to tempt those people down and say, you're just being difficult and make it work. You take the learnings and say, well, how could it be better? And try to pull that across the number of people to get some learning. So, so uh, we have done, have done that and just today met with the uh, EDS leadership to follow up on some um, um, feedback uh, I shared indirectly from staff as well as that they've been collecting themselves and seeing kind of the sequence of corrective actions they're doing that are directly in that spirit. So I do think we have a lot of that across the organization. Do we have a lot of the challenging circumstances similar to uh, ones you described? Absolutely, we have that as well. But um, Trustee Avalada is right. Uh, it is not a monolith and there, um, uh, there are areas where things are going well, there are areas where we're challenging and we're trying to trying to um, uh, balance those things and lift up where it's well and try to uh, uh, continue to improve, improve in areas where we're still struggling. So we'll do both of these things, but absolutely think that there is value and appreciated your encouragement uh, to bringing in external expertise because sometimes, and what we appreciated during the assessment is there's some value to having someone else ask the question and giving people the space to have candid feedback that they don't worry about you know, if they have a concern with sharing it with someone else and worry about attribution or things like that. I have a Thank question you. for Shambir. So, can we unmute Dr. Stein, please? 
Thank you. Um, I just wanted to um, follow up and, and well, thank you very much. I mean, and um, for the quick response and the, um, the quick and accepted response to the Joint Commission report. That's great. And, and most of all, thank you for your candor in um, answering Trustee Bouquet's questions, especially. I wanted to ask you though, can you tell me the date that the um, Stroke Center recertification? Oh yes. Uh, For the month, at least. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I, it was this week. Um, oh great. Okay. Well then, um, I'll share it with the district and the physicians at Alameda. Absolutely. I'll forward that information to you, Trustee Jensen. Thank you. Other questions for Dr. Hussain? All right, I'll move us on to status of the pandemic response. Uh, so incident management team report. We have Luis on the line. Can we unmute Mr. Fonseca? There we go. <laughs> well, good evening, trustees. Thank you for uh, for the opportunity. I won't go through, uh, through this in, in great, great detail. You've had the presentation in your packet, but I wanted to just provide you a high-level sense of all the work that's been going on, and certainly kudos to uh, an entire team that uh, has been working diligently for countless hours to put this all together and to have a robust plan, as it was indicated earlier. I'm not sure if it was in the PSC or even in this meeting, but... Uh, mentioned by uh, Dr. Ballard and others that uh, there's just been a tremendous, tremendous amount of time and energy that's been put into this. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the things that I did not do purposely uh, was was put a slide that identified or recognized individuals uh, that, that participated in this because the, you know, the unintended consequences that I would have probably missed one and then I would have never heard the end of it. Uh, so I just figured I would mention Lock the audio, Louise. Mute me. Make sure that you only have one audio source going. You'll mute the computer if you're using your phone, because you're getting an echo. Uh, I, I don't. All I have is the computer audio. You have a headset? Oops, sorry. I do not. Is it still an echo? Do you guys still get an echo? I don't. I hear you fine. I can't I see can anyone. So. <laughs> so, I will continue. Um, so, uh, the the presentation problem. What was the problem that we were trying to resolve? Our proposed solution. Uh, how we began our activities. Structure of the incident command as well as, uh, you know, just some of the statistics as far as what we have uh, what we have experienced thus far. And, and again, recognizing that that number changes on a daily basis and the information you had was as, a, as of a certain point in time. Uh, and then lastly, you know, our communication strategy, which has been uh, relatively robust. Uh, moving on to the next slide, uh, Mike, thank you. So again, uh, as we all know, we had a, we had a challenge and we were presented with a, 
a situation where there was a, a pandemic. Uh, this pandemic would, could have potentially or was experienced across the country in many other locations, uh, an expected influx of patients uh, that were impacted by that, uh, by that uh, uh, virus. And so, therefore, we wanted to make sure that we were positioned as an organization to be able to support that. So then our proposed solution under the next slide Uh, was to develop a, a comprehensive search plan that not only looked at our ability to rapidly change the, the, the current state of our, of our organization, of our facility, and how we were leveraging every single one of our key assets within the system to provide the greatest coverage and support for the entire county. And so we were looking at various factors and the three major components, looking at our facilities to ensure that we have sufficient capacity and space, the supplies and equipment that were going to be required to support that, and then lastly, the staffing that would be necessary to deliver the care. And so those were the, the three key principles that we used to support all of our activity in, in developing and finalizing a comprehensive search plan. Next slide. So as we were looking at our readiness and planning, uh, we were... Uh, we activated, leveraging our hospital incident command system, uh, we activated our incident command center. Uh, this was done on March 17th, specifically focusing on this event. Uh, as you will see later on in the future slides, uh, we had activated our incident command center prior to March 17th as we were responding and dealing with uh, the, uh, I guess, disembarkment of the Princess Cruise Line. And so at that time, we went ahead and activated as well, and, uh, and Dr. Hussein. Uh, really led that effort uh, for, uh, by and large for, for the entire uh, duration of that event. Uh, here, our goals were to provide uh, a, a, cons a consistent and a systematic way of managing and organizing issues that were raised uh, throughout the organization. And so uh, operational issues were addressed real-time. People were uh, uh, tasked with different uh, responsibilities and activities, and it allowed us to ensure that we had a consistent way of uh, dealing and managing the situation uh, to ensure that we had the best uh, possible outcome uh, of, of, of anything that was presented. Next slide. This here is the structure uh, that we were uh, leveraging. And so the framework of, you know, that supported our search plan, as I mentioned earlier, looking at space staff and supplies and systems. Uh, when we were looking at space, we were wanting to make sure that we uh, we're considering not only traditional care spaces, but also non-traditional care spaces. And this was, again, largely driven by some of the recommendations uh, from, you know, the, the CDC, CDPH, and even the Alameda County Public Health Department and others that were involved in actively preparing and planning for this effort. And le leveraging some of the lessons learned from uh, some of our colleagues across the nation that were experiencing much larger influxes and, and uh, significant impact to their facilities. We wanted to make sure that we were uh, very comprehensive and looking at all of our areas with a key focus of intensive care beds and other areas and beds that could be converted to intensive care, recognizing the complexity and the impact that was being experienced across the nation for patients requiring higher level of care, acuity, higher acuity, and uh, ventilator support. And so that was the key focus. Uh, then we were looking at staff. As we heard in QPSC, there was a, a major effort to ensure that we had emergency privileging completed and that we had access to uh, providers uh, and physicians that can continue to provide care and support uh, all, all activities of the hospitals. Uh, and then also from a nursing perspective and all other uh, support staff uh, working closely with our uh, GPO and our, uh, our, our registry provider to ensure that we had 
uh, personnel lined up to come to the facility as necessary to ensure that we can manage that type of influx. Uh, and then supplies has been a uh, equipment and supplies have been a key focus. Uh, that's something that we have been looking at uh, from from day one, managing our, our PPE, which has been uh, a key focus and a primary concern of us to make sure that, that our staff have everything they need to deliver care and that they're always protected uh, while they're doing so. Uh, looking at uh, all our other areas, pharmaceuticals, recognizing that the care for these patients required very specific interventions. And so certain pharmaceuticals were were uh, essential for that uh, for that care, and that then became a shortage. So how we were looking at alternatives and how we were managing our allocations for these uh, medications and making sure that we were always well-stocked to support those activities. And then uh, major equipment such as beds, ventilators, and uh, physiological monitors, which was the key focus for us to, to enable the expansion of, of space and, and capacity. Uh, we you know, were looking at what we had available to us, uh, plus what we would require in support from our county or from the strategic national stockpile to make sure that we can make that happen, recognizing that, again, there are limitations on what we can do as far as procuring many of these uh, uh, pieces of equipment. Next slide. So our principles that uh, were certainly guiding our, our efforts to put together this plan were largely focused on, uh, you know, the, what we were gaining from our local, state, and federal response, uh, looking at uh, assessing uh, where we could look at decreasing uh, some of our capacity in other areas to ensure that we were able to ramp up and have as much space available to support the activities. Uh, and then lastly, looking at expanding our system-wide critical care capacity uh, using all of our spaces, including our, our alternative care spaces. This next slide uh, speaks to uh, the triggers that we were uh, looking at and how we were moving from stage to stage. So we wanted to make sure that uh, as we're looking at conventional, uh, our conventional model is how we provide care every single day under normal circumstances. Once we reached a point of 90% to 160% capacity, we were looking at moving into a new stage, which, which we called contingency model, where we would start activating other care areas and leveraging our footprint. And then greater than 161% capacity, we were in what we would consider crisis mode, where we are now looking at moving into uh, non-traditional spaces to ensure that we were uh, caring and managing the population as best as possible. Uh, next slide. This is what the plan looked like at the end uh, when we were looking at our conventional state, what our total bed capacity was. As you can see at the bottom there, 265 beds with uh, a capability of moving all the way up to 489 beds. So this, uh, you know, again, took a tremendous amount of work looking at all the spaces, looking at what we could do and ensure that we had the infrastructure in place to manage that population, recognizing that there are certain requirements to manage this type of airborne disease. Uh, so, uh, you know, tremendous work went into looking at our infrastructure, managing and, and uh, manipulating some of our main systems to support negative pressure uh, situations in some of our clinical areas and making sure that we were able to move uh, patients safely and protect our staff in this environment to contain any further potential for outbreak. Next slide. The next couple of slides, actually, we can kind of flip through those. Uh, uh, you've seen these. This was just to give you a sense, and the intent, again, equally for this overall presentation, was to give you a sense of uh, the, the, the process that we went through and the flows that were put together to guide our work. Uh, so it, at the event that when a surge presented itself to the facility, uh, to any of our facilities, we had a, a path or a, a, 
a tool and a document that would help inform and guide our actions to ensure that we were able to move patients safely through the facility to ensure that they were receiving care and that we were activating areas as appropriate. Thank you, Mike. Next slide there. Now the next couple slides uh, are just giving you a sense of our total patients tested. This is just how we're tracking our data. Uh, you will see, uh, and maybe I can preempt some questions uh, before we move on. In that previous slide, Mike, uh, you had, uh, and early on, as you can see there on 324, we were 325, we were at 211, and on 326, we were at 193. So, again, there were some, some data issues initially. Uh, there, there was, you know, patients that were tested multiple times. Uh, and so on and so forth. So that's what we really uh, corrected some of that. And so as you can see from that point forward is where we were looking at unique patient encounters and managing that population. Next slide. This gives you a sense of our confirmed versus total tested. Uh, and again, this is as of 416. Uh, as of today, the number is a little bit higher. I think we're over tested over 700 and our confirmed positives were uh, larger. I want to say it was around uh, 70 or so. Next slide. Now this broke down those 53 patients that we saw at that point in time, uh, what the breakdown was of those that uh, were receiving care actively in our facilities. So this essentially gives you uh, uh, an indication of those patients that uh, although they did present to our facilities, they did test positive, they were not requiring uh, intensive or inpatient acute care and were sent home to shelter in place and to continue to monitor their symptoms, uh, you know, as they were, you know, managing, uh, you know, their, their, their illnesses. Uh, 18, however, uh, did require uh, inpatient admission and were receiving care within our facility, many of which uh, were uh, in our ICU, uh, but I would say that the vast majority were in our uh, medical, surgical, uh, other spaces within the hospital facility, specifically here at Highland. Uh, but we did have a share, uh, our share of uh, probably a good 50% of those were ICU patients. The others were not. Next slide. The next couple of slides here just give you a sense of the total response and all the work and activity that has happened uh, over the last several months, starting in January. As I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, when we're looking at uh, when, when things started happening across the nation as we were managing and, and, and ensuring, uh, you know, that we were staying, keeping a pulse on what, what was happening, we began the work late January, continued through that. We started modifying and enhancing our policies regarding uh, high hand hygiene and, and uh, precautions for airborne aerosol transmissible diseases. Uh, and then we started putting out communication regarding, you know, COVID-19, trying to get people informed and, uh, and aware, recognizing that there were so many different media outlets that were speaking to the, to the issues across the nation. We wanted to make sure that we were managing that here as best as we could. Um, next slide, Mike. Here is where we had uh, the, the order that went into place here in California. The incident command center was activated at that point with a shelter in place went into effect. And we've been pretty much actively managing, uh, the, acti uh, managing the incident command center up until uh, yesterday. Uh, we were managing it seven days a week, uh, 12 hours a day uh, with a physical presence here in the incident command and then virtual uh, for uh, 12 hours of the day, 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. Uh, now, what we have done effective yesterday, uh, we've, we've scaled back uh, our activity of manning the, the command center uh, to Monday, Wednesday, Friday, uh, where we're still 
providing support, making sure that we're keeping a pulse on what's going on in some of the activities that we have across our system. Uh, but we are equally now beginning to depend and, and ensure that uh, we're leveraging our site leadership across all of our departments and our sites uh, themselves to ensure that they're continuing to support the care that's being provided and the activity within their facilities. Uh, I will share with you that the volumes have been uh, low as, as compared to our historical performance. Uh, I will tell you that as, as we speak right now uh, at Alameda Hospital, uh, just to give you a sense uh, of, of the magnitude of Alameda Hospital, we have uh, one patient in our ED, according to our EPIC dashboard. Uh, at at uh, San Leandro, we have three, and at Highland, we have uh, 39. So, um, again, it, it's, it's lower, certainly lower numbers than what we uh, have experienced in the past, and that's been somewhat of a trend over the last uh, several weeks, several months now. Most recently, we started seeing slightly bigger numbers here at Highland, uh, but certainly at our other hospitals, it's been a little bit different. Uh, and then uh, what I would uh, also hear you see at the very bottom, we have our, our towards the bottom, we have our CEO uh, desktop chats. We started that in April uh, and Del Vecchio, along with a, with a panel of, of, of staff uh, and experts that speak to the various, uh, you know, aspects of the, of the event. Uh, that happens every single Wednesday uh, for about an hour uh, where we are able to provide updates on, uh, and provide information on what, what we're doing, what's happening. Uh, but also answer questions directly from the staff. Uh, they've all been very well attended, uh, always usually in the five, 600 range of participants. And so that, that's been very well received, and, and it's uh, certainly kudos to the team that put those, uh, put those together. Uh, next slide. So lastly, our communication strategy, uh, our goal was to, again, make sure that we're keeping everyone as informed as possible. Uh, the event uh, was, was very, uh, you know, emotional. There was a lot of, of uncertainty. There was a lot of, of fear. There was a lot of, of uh, concerns, you know, based on what people were hearing from, you know, across the world, uh, you know, in, in, in Europe and, and uh, even in the East Coast, in New York and Washington. And so uh, we wanted to make sure that we had a mechanism by which we were trying to provide uh, clear and concise information, making sure that we were dispelling any rumors or misconceptions. And uh, we were wanting to ensure that our staff had uh, the latest and greatest uh, information available. We uh, were providing uh, email alerts, uh, which we were sending on the on the on a daily basis. Uh, a report out, a daily update from our command center. We also uh, put together a COVID resource page on our intranet, uh, which uh, has a tremendous amount of resources, and that continues to be evaluated and updated. Uh, and then, like uh, like I mentioned earlier, our CEO desktop chats that we were doing uh, during uh, every single Wednesday. Uh, and then externally, we were not only leveraging our external facing uh, web page, but then leveraging all of our social media to ensure that we were communicating some of the aspects related to uh, the work that was happening. So that's essentially, uh, you know, from an incident command perspective, that was our key focus. It was bringing everyone together to help us put together a comprehensive plan. That plan was finalized, and uh, at, once it was finalized, we shared it uh, with the county as we were wanting to ensure that we were collectively working uh, on uh, a, a way to support the needs of our community and how we could be a key asset in their response and how they were managing the, uh, you know, the, the, the response. And so uh, we shared that with them, and now we are sitting here in a position where, you know, should something present uh, and should we see a, a major influx uh, driven by this type of pandemic or any other type of pandemic, we feel very confident that we have a very robust 
uh, strategy, plan, and, and tool that will guide us through that and will ensure that we can continue to provide high-quality, safe, and efficient care. And that's all I have, unless you have any questions. Questions for Luis, or did any other um, any other members of the of the team want to chime in at all? I have a question, um, Luis. Um, when you talk about the incident command center, I, I'm just and about the resources and the the information available on the website and inter, I know that the internal um, communications that have been very effective. Are, They've been very, um, very well done. But my question is for someone who's um, in, doing their job at work and they have a, um, a need for information regarding PPE or regarding um, a policy around a COVID, potential COVID patient, how do they get immediate response? Is it just from their manager or do, is there another opportunity for them to get information so there's there's multiple vehicles for that i mean but i would say that the first uh and it should always be for not just information around ppe but for anything that the staff may need they should always refer to their manager first uh if if they can't get the information or answer from their manager then you know they, they can certainly escalate to their director or all the way up to the site administrator uh that can certainly provide them that guidance uh some in some instances uh, there were things that were, you know, we were identifying as, as patterns or something that was affecting multiple sites. And so those would be escalated to the command center. Then the command center would take a more comprehensive approach to ensure that we were addressing it systemically and not just for that particular area. And so uh, there, there were very various ways for us to go ahead and do that. But again, I, I continue to emphasize to the staff and everyone that, you know, the, the, the command center is not intended to displace the responsibilities or the scope or role of the um of the managers and, and the local leaders that should be, uh, you know, very visible and, and attentive to what's going on. In fact, in every one of our uh, report outs or our updates, uh, you know, we would constantly remind our leaders and our managers to uh, to be very generous and to be very supportive of their teams, recognizing that, uh, you know, the more their staff knew about what was going on, uh, the, you know, the better they would feel, the safer they would feel, and it would make a, a big difference. So, remaining and being very generous uh, with our time as we round, as we, as we visit, and as we communicate with our staff is extremely important. Hi, Luis. Thanks for that presentation. Um, my, uh, here's, uh, I have a, a two-part question. So um, I think uh, I couldn't remember the exact date. I think on your slides it said on March 30th that we rolled out a employee leave policy, uh, which uh, effectively allowed uh, employees who had children to take 12 weeks of fully paid leave off. And um, I am going to uh, follow up in your theme. I think that was remarkably generous of this organization for our partners, uh, our employees, and, and to my recollection went above and beyond kind of the federal uh, uh, mandates. So my two-part question is, can you walk me through the operational dialogue which happened to arrive at that decision because uh, uh, I, I, I've known it's, all, it's always about a story. Um, I know at least on my unit, and I've heard from other units, on my personal unit, five of my six full-time nurses 
took that leave. So I was left with one full-time nurse. Um, so number one, walk me through the operational dialogue in consideration of that. Did we, did we forecast how many take it off? Uh, and then uh, question number two is, can you, can you, uh, and, 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 and anyone can jump in on this one, any, any of the staff, uh, to date, how many have taken that leave? And then what are the financial implications? Because we're paying these employees who've taken time off, um, again, very generous of the organization. Um, we're paying them full time, yet we're still backstaffing. And some of that backstaffing uh, is, is which we know can be expensive. And um, this, so those two questions. Thank you, Trustee. Those are both very, very great questions. And I'm looking at the list of participants. Can you hear me? Yeah, no, great. Uh, I was, uh, I, I think those were two very good questions that I was looking at the list of participants to see how I can punt this over to either Tony or Del Vecchio. But uh, uh, I see Del Vecchio raising his hand, and I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to him. Smart. <laughs> Thank you, Luis. Uh, I um, don't, uh, well, let me just share what I know and then let me uh, uh, tell you I have to get you specifics on the other part. So with respect to your first question, uh, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we were tracking all the different uh, measures happening around the federal government and locally to support uh, not just our organization, but uh, other industries uh, that were impacted by uh, the pandemic. And um, one of the first things that Congress passed was the Federal Families, uh, Family Medical Leave Act or Families First Leave Act. And um, our HR leaders, as well as our uh, policy and uh, general counsel, uh, were tracking this measure, looking at uh, the various components of it, who it applied to, who it didn't apply to. And then uh, that led to a series of internal discussions amongst us about what that meant for our organization. So uh, we, we consulted our in-house uh, experts as well as some external experts, came to the conclusion that uh, while the, there were a couple of different um, uh, sort of aspects of the act that uh, would have exempted us as an essential employer in the healthcare space, um, that um, this uh, came down to uh, both a policy call a balance with a value call. And uh, from a policy perspective, we thought that there were potentially areas where we could lean, like many organizations were likely to, and in fact did do, and say that this was not something that we had to extend to our workforce. Um, from a values call, uh, and I should say, and on the policy side, my recollection was, and while we may be able to do that, uh, either in the immediate moment and or down the road, uh, there, there is a potential that there will be challenges to that from uh, a host of different entities that would uh, support uh, uh, various uh, workplaces that would make that call. So, so uh, knowing that there was maybe some legal grounds for doing it as well as some potential risk for not doing it, uh, that was one data point. The for values call piece, um, uh, went effectively like this. My, my conversation with Tony and others was, you know, as an organization, we know that we have a workforce that, particularly in the Bay Area where we did do shelter in place, were uh, very much impacted by uh, uh, childcare challenges, um, uh, challenges with supporting their family members and others that may have been in senior centers and other sorts of areas that no longer 
uh, were available to them, as well as then uh, concerns for taking care of their own health care needs. And while we wanted to do everything in our power to mitigate uh, as many of these concerns as possible uh, so that people could focus on caring for the community, um, we uh, felt that it was, from a values perspective, a, a good thing to do um, uh, without being required to do it to extend uh, this benefit. I think the totality of it adds up um, uh, to uh, that amount of time, but I don't think it in of itself uh, was about 12 weeks. So. My apologies if my, my recollection is wrong on that, but I don't think in the South was 12 total weeks, uh, but it is several um, uh, weeks. I think it was um, 14 or 15 uh, days itself for the act, and then you could combine it with other leave that you already had if you have if you're eligible for FEMLA. It does still require that you are eligible for it, and so there is a uh, set of criteria around demonstrating that you uh, have this hardship and you fall within this category. That notwithstanding, we put that in place and it did go in place as of April 1st when the law went in place. Concurrently, as you know, uh, and I should say the last part of that was uh, before we made the determination to move forward with it, because we knew that we were stepping out uh, uh, and doing something potentially uh, different for, oh, sorry, I'm so sorry. This is the second time I've done that today. Did you do it? I did. Uh, apologies, folks, I triggered the alarm. Uh, for the second time today. Come say hi again. Yeah, hi. Sorry, I'm on a call. <laughs> no, it's okay. I have a work call. Um, my my uh, handle keeps hitting that, so i got to watch that. Um, I'm, glad that I'm glad that your safety button works. I know. I know. I'm sad that this is the second time I've, I've pulled in some other important things, but it does work. Um, so, yeah, we sent it out. You'll recall we sent it out to the board saying, hey, we intend to do this. Uh, uh, but certainly if you have any uh, concerns or objections to us doing this, please let us know. Uh, and uh, admittedly, uh, um, uh, not a lot of time to do that because of when the act went into place, but uh, that was one of the things that we sourced uh, for, to, to understand. Thank you. I uh, appreciate your support. Uh, um, uh, where we were going as an organization. Uh, Dr. Because you will know uh, from our conversation that I was involved with your team that uh, we have many employees in our organization who work in other organizations, and they did point out that they saw it as an incredible act on the part of this organization, and kudos to the board to, for supporting that because there were some organizations who, in fact, did not do that uh, and have not done that. At the same time, I want to say we put in place and took um, uh, action to put in place another resource for people to get um, those benefits from Bright Horizons, and we, um, because of timing and logistics, to set that up while this went in place April 1st, that could not go into place until April 15th, and our hope was that when we could help uh, our uh, our employees who were supporting the community in this other way, that that too would actually uh, uh, allow them to then come safely and uh, uh, with that support come back to work. So uh, we weren't, um, uh, there was no way to really anticipate who would take this leave, who would qualify for it, and uh, who would avail themselves of it, um, and where that might um, uh, cause undue hardship in the organization. We were very sensitive to that, uh, uh, but um, I will uh, concede it was my call that um, I did not want, if people felt that they were here and their family members were not safe and they could not focus on care for the community uh, in the way that we would need them to, I thought it was a principal thing to do, uh, notwithstanding the hardship that it is placing on the organization. So. Um, uh, that was essentially the call and the process by which we uh, reached that conclusion um, uh, or made that decision. 
and then again, uh, I don't see Tony here, but I'd be happy to provide you data with tracking on it. Uh, I think as of the last update I got, which was a couple of days ago, the number of employees who've been approved under this is in the range of about 70 or 80 um, uh, employees, and there are a couple who are pending uh, a review. Uh, the last thing I'll say on this is there are some employees who, um, just like with our regular uh, leave uh, request, uh, employees can make a request uh, for those leaves, and it is pending approval uh, in the areas where it requires approval, and this is one of them. Some employees take it upon themselves to take the leave uh, recognizing that they are um, um, uh, or intentionally taking the risk of taking the leave pending an approval, which means that if it's not approved, that they will have to use some other form of leave uh, to uh, cover for that. So we do have, I believe, some instances where people have done that, uh, uh, but we are still working through the process. Do we have a forecast, and maybe we don't have this data yet, and maybe Kim can, if Kim knows this, do we have a forecast as to the cost of backfilling these 70 to 80 people did that was was that considered in the projection uh i think when kim did her projection she can speak to it i don't know if she's updated them at this point uh but uh because that started on april 1st uh, she may have uh, since updated it uh but that it's been a rolling thing uh, so that number 72 wasn't immediate and uh okay. it's built up uh, yeah, so, so I, yeah, I did it as of March 31st, and I have not updated it since March 31st. It's now April 23rd. Yeah. Um, so I don't have that number in my projection. Uh, Tony did say that he'd be giving me some reports, uh, and I did make sure that payroll has the ability to track it. But as you can see, if it just started April 1st and they're still in process, we've had maybe one payroll. So, uh, But soon. So, Dovecchio, if I can summarize, when it came down to a, a time of question about being generous to our employees or not, you chose to be generous to our employees. Is that correct? Um, absolutely. And with your support, I would say, I mean, I, we felt like it was the right thing to do. We, we, we have shared with the workforce that uh, it, is, it, it, it is a, you know, it's something we will have to factor in as we look at balancing again all these uh, important values and how we move forward as an organization. But in the moment, uh, I did feel it was the right thing to do to support people. I think that's an important data, piece of data as we as we go towards mending relationships. Thank you, Dovecchio. Sure. Thank you. Uh, no, huh? You're on mute. You're, 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 you're. Oh my gosh. Okay, I'm going to learn. Um, any other questions on this item? No? Okay, great. I will move us into uh, the COVID-19 Executive Task Force. So last Monday, um, Executive Committee met and decided to um, go forward with our COVID-19 Task Force um, that has been assembled. It is myself. Trustee Bouquet and Trustee Banerjee, thank you. And uh, Trustee Peterson is my alternate in the event that I that I can't attend um, a meeting or or, or any other activity. Um, and so, uh, what we've done thus far is we've uh, scoped out our work. Um, okay, sorry, I'm getting a message from Mike. Mike, was there more to the item book, prior item? Yeah, I, I can actually, sorry, I'll, I'll speak to it, Mike. Um, apologies, I know we're, we're, we're okay. well into our time here, but uh, 
one of the things that Chelsea had, had asked for also was uh, uh, an understanding of some of our data, particularly across demographic, uh, demographic uh, uh, populations. And we've, we've done that. Uh, we, Mark is on the line. I still see here and can walk through through that if you're still in Tangerine as well, uh, if you're if you're still desirous of, of seeing that. Uh, but I recognize that. Yeah, we would love to see it. I know that both Chessie and Hannes and I have been asking for this, and so thank you so much um, for putting this together. So Mark and Tangerine, if you'll, if you'll quickly uh, walk us through that, that'd be very helpful. Okay, um, great. And um, I'm hoping I can share my screen, but I need to have uh, the host uh, enable me to do so because we do have, uh, we're actually going to take a little bit of a chance and share the dashboard live uh, here um, uh, with it. So I could get a little bit more interactive uh, if I can. Ah, I got it. Okay, great. So I am uh, pulling up here um, our dashboard, and uh, before I jump into this, I actually want to see uh, just do a quick shout out to Taft because I see him uh, see him on the screen here, and um, I saw him uh, yesterday um, uh, morning as well. I actually um, am both an employee with Alameda Health System, very proud to be, but also a patient of Alameda Health Systems at that time. And I got great care from Taft and his team yesterday. And I wanted to just say thank you, Taft, for the work uh, you guys did. I love my primary care um, physician here, Dr. Nelson, and I love your team as well. I mean, just the quality of the work and obviously the culture you guys have. I know we've talked about it. Super um, competent and uh, well-qualified group of clinicians uh, on your team. And I, I really value the uh, work, so thank you. Mark, thank you for saying that. I, I wasn't going to break HIPAA. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's safe if the patient brings up their... Uh, and that, 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 that is correct. <laughs> and and what, what, what I'll say is what I said to you when you were in your post-anesthesia fog is uh, if, if all of us got our care in the system, things would change immediately. So, well, I, uh, I believe in drinking our own, uh, the saying used to be eat your own dog food, it's uh, drink your own champagne. I will say that the process through everything was uh, worked flawlessly. Um, I did, I think, find it, uh, a bug in my chart that we're chasing down, and I found one um, process in my chart that we can improve as well, because I'm a consumer on that as well. And so we've, uh, I happen to know the people that can help me fix that. So uh, we're working on those as well. But really, your, your team was outstanding, so thank you. And don't forget signature pads. <laughs> yes, I have not. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, Hey, so um, what I want to do is I want to show, and I, you know, I know Tanvir was on earlier presenting. Um, Tanvir and Andrew have been great partners in helping put together this um, work. They actually co-chaired our data governance committee, and Tanvir has been really focused on the first um, uh, set of data that we have here, which is around our command center and on dashboard. You notice we call it 2.0. We made some major revisions to it um, recently. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, um, uh, and uh, Luis had already talked about some of our numbers. These numbers are actually live in the system, so they're real-time for us right now with what you're seeing, 744 total unique patients that we've tested to date, um, 82 patients that we've actually seen at this point um, with um, uh, a positive COVID result. You can actually see where the patients are in our system for each one of them. I'm not going to drill down into this because we would get into PHI, but I could. I could actually get all the way down and see exactly the patient on each floor uh, in this mm -hmm. 
The no value here represents 63 patients that are no longer in our system. So this is patients that uh, may have been in the system and well, definitely were in the system, either in our ED or somewhere else in the system where they got tested and are now at home um, or at potentially another um, care provider in the longer system uh, with those. So you would actually, over time, see this number growing um, as our number uh, the other thing, we actually added the number of ventilators. This is a request out of our operations uh, group, number of ventilators that we uh, have in use. At one point earlier today, this was up as high as 38 uh, ventilators. So uh, we've been uh, we've had uh, five uh, patients come off a ventilator uh, today because I've been uh, checking on the dashboard periodically uh, with what we have going on. I'm not convinced to press this, but you can see how many um, open negative uh, pressure rooms we have, and you can see um, wait time or uh, number of patients holding in our various uh, EDs as well. We said uh, talked about that as well. What I am going to do is I'm going to pop over to our population health explorer, which is the specific data that had been requested um, uh, by the board um, last meeting. And Andrean's actually agreed to uh, help me. Uh, explain through some of this data because she is the uh, population health guru. We also have a couple of slides that we can now uh, pop to and refer to around um, what's going on in the county in general, as well as some of the OSHPOD data reporting that we have. And Noah, I know you and I have uh, been in contact earlier today about that and the fact that we're uh, with that. And I actually appreciated the uh, insight you had on how you guys are doing some of your reporting there as well. So thank you. Um, Tangent, I want to pause for a second. Is there anything you want to add? Otherwise, I'm just going to step uh, the trustees through the um, dashboard um, here. And when we get down specifically to ethnicity and race and the split there, we can talk a little bit in a little bit more detail to that, if that's okay. Yeah, that sounds good. So um, the numbers up that you, you see up top here are exactly the same numbers that you saw on the other dashboard. The one thing that's of interest is we have 42 patients that we're waiting for test results on. Uh, to orientate you to the rest of the dashboard, you um, are showing total number of patients um, that we tested. We're showing total number of patients positive in each one, and then we're to uh, showing um, deceased patients. The deceased patients, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking to you. The, um, the group is uh, such a small group that there's not, you know, it's a sort of situation, but there's not meaningful data in that particular, uh, in, in that particular area. If you take a look, we actually have 440 patients that we've um, tested out of, of the Oakland area. That makes sense. We're based in Oakland. That's also our biggest population of um, positive um, patients. Again, uh, makes uh, complete sense as you step through this. San Diego, um, Alameda, and Hayward are obviously you know, next on the list for us from a testing standpoint. Also, as you jump down, you can see um, both our, um, our patients tested by um, age and by uh, gender. Uh, here, and you can see um, the number of positives that we have here as well. Nothing that seems abnormal with this. We're testing approximately 50-50 um, uh, in this age group uh, that we're testing. Um, obviously, a little bit higher on the 50 to 70-some-year-old um, uh, some year, uh, year group. You can see the number that are coming back as positive. We have more women that came back as positive in the 50 to 70-year-old um, group. We had uh, uh, more men that came back in the 35 to 50-year-old group. With our sampling size not as statistical um, uh, on number. Jumping down to the next area, and actually, um, Tangerine spent about a month or so, or so, spent some time educating me on the difference between race and ethnicity, and I appreciate that, uh, Tangerine. It took me through uh, the differences because I was getting confused myself in the reporting. You started to see how we're reporting out on um, race and ethnicity. 
So by far the largest population that we are um, uh, testing, well not by far, but uh, the largest population we're testing is African American um, uh, population here. The next biggest group we're testing is actually uh, a category under race of other, and we're going to come back and explain in a second what that means. White is the third, and then you see that we have a drop down on Asian being next, and then we have a drop down uh, to some some smaller groups. The number of positives that we're um, seeing in um, the uh, dashboard is, by far is other, is, uh, is our biggest population that is showing up as positive. African-American as next, although significantly fewer African-American versus what we're testing than the other population, white, Asian, and then uh, the other smaller groups. I want to pause here because I think before we jump any further than this, than the race and then into ethnicity, it's important to explain how we're capturing the data that we're capturing. Does that make does that make sense so far with where we're kind of laying this out? Okay, I got a thumbs up there. Um, I'm going to pop over to another screen. And Tangerine, please jump in here if you want to um, uh, say um, anything on this. Uh, this is actually the screen, uh, the slide that you Sure. Talked. Sure. Let, let me then uh, drive this piece. So, um, one of the things that is nice. Can you hear me? Uh, yes? Okay. One of the things that's important to recognize is that EPIC was built yeah. uh, one of our critical science uh, programs, and that's ASHFA. Yeah. yeah. Andrine, I think you may have two audio sources going there, potentially. No, I, I don't. Now we can't hear you. <laughs> While um, we're doing that, I am going to mention if you see my virtual background, this is actually a screen capture of um, Coy and Jason and Pam, who were instrumental, Coy and Jason, especially in building out the dashboard for us uh, here. Um, they both have on ties today because they had uh, thought at one point that they may be coming on to present uh, to the board with us. Um, uh, but we, uh, uh, Tangerine and I thought we could cover this, so we released them uh, from them. But uh, I don't see those guys in ties very often, so I had to snap a picture of it. Thank you for their good work. They've done great work for us, so thank you. Thanks for, uh, appreciate you recognizing that. Tangerine, are we... Uh, Tangerine, you're still on mute. On mute now. Can you hear me now? Yes. yes. All righty. Okay, we'll try this again. Um, so Epic was built to be in compliance with OSHPA, which is our hospital reporting. OSHPA is very specific in terms of its requirements for both the race and ethnicity categories. So in ethnicity, there are really only three options. One can be of Hispanic origin, Latino origin, or not, or unknown. Those are the only options that are available to us. Um, race, uh, someone can select up to five options. So someone who is biracial uh, can uh, select an option here, um, or they could select just one option. Because EPIC is built uh, to be in compliance for OSHPED for inpatient, we use the same 
racial and ethnic categories also for our outpatient or ambulatory care setting. And so that does mean that, you know, while um, many of us would ins may instinctively think of Latino or Hispanic as a race, it's not captured that way. And so our data has some limitations in terms of providing this information to you. But wanted to give you that context as we're as Mark and I are going through the race and ethnicity portions of the dashboard. Any questions there? Hendrine, is this how every system does it? Yes. So every California hospital system uh, for reporting for OSHPUD, yes, that is the requirement. So there is nothing new uh, in that. Okay. So with that as a little bit of context uh, on this, I'm going to take you through the rest. One of the things, so Jason, uh, who's in the back uh, back there um, on the screen, um, actually worked as a registrar um, in a former life before he joined IS. And so he talked actually about his registration experience, and he said, regularly um, he would have patients present and they would not identify as they would identify as, with a race as, as you're talking with them as a race of Hispanic or Latino and so what was fairly or is common is to identify race as other because they wouldn't identify with any of the other races so race would become other and then they would identify as, as Hispanic and our numbers as we've looked through some of our chart audits on this is fairly consistent with this so if you take a look at this then from the other, and you'll see this then come into play in some of the other um, data as I show you, we have a significantly higher um, um, population of Hispanic and Latino um, patients that are testing positive um, for uh, COVID-19. If you come down here then to um, where we're identifying on our um, tested by ethnic group, and again, remember, it's either yes, I identify as Hispanic or Latino, or no, I don't, or um, unknown. We have about 600 folks that have uh, said that they're not uh, Hispanic or Latino. And then if you um, add these other numbers together, we have a little over 200 um, uh, patients that have identified as Latino that, or Hispanic that we've uh, tested. Interestingly, as you come in here, roughly uh, 37 of them um, um, were positive of the non-Hispanic Latino. And then if you start to add these other um, categories together, over half of the um, population that we've um, tested um, has uh, you know, identified as Hispanic or Latino. Um, jumping down then to the last area, which is where we capture language. Mark, I'm sorry. Oh, it's over half, yeah, over half that identify as Latino are positive. Is that correct? So it, 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 what you would do is you take the 29 plus the 12 yeah. and add it together. Okay. So not significantly over half, but considering the group that we're testing, which is, and I don't have the numbers here. About a quarter. It's about a quarter. About a quarter of them that we tested, and about half of them are coming in as positive. Okay, thank you. So, and, and going back to my statistics days from way back when, I would say that is a statistically significant number um, that we're seeing um, with that, obviously. So um, then it, the last thing I'd say is if you take a look then at language, and again, this is an interesting um, uh, 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 item that we grabbed. So we actually grabbed two things on language when we're, um, uh, when we're um, uh, registering a patient. The first is their preferred language, which would be a spoken language. And then the other is, and there's, there can be only one of those. And then the other is a written language, and we can actually have several selections in written language. This is representing out on what their preferred or spoken language would be. So again, on this part, 
population, 600 and some, you know, roughly 650 of our um, patients identified English as their preferred language. Uh, 111 um, patients identified um, um, Spanish as the preferred language. And then we have a very small um, number on this. The guides didn't want me to make sure and represent this is only the top 15 languages we're showing here. We actually have a trail that goes further on that, but from a graphical standpoint, uh, it wouldn't present well. Of our positive patients, again, the split is roughly 50-50 on English-speaking patients versus uh, Spanish-speaking patients that tested positive for COVID. So that is the data dashboard in this current iteration. Um, we have been um, iterating on this rapidly, so I would expect in the next few days we will have some additional updates. Um, one of the things we're interested in is starting to look at, you know, what can we um, tie together with uh, potentially some of our homeless population versus uh, positive COVID testing, other things like that. There's some limitations in the data that we got to work through on that piece as well. That is uh, what we have today. So, Andrew. I mean, the purpose of doing this is really trying to determine whether or not there's been any disproportionate burden uh, uh, across our populations. And if so, you know, how do we actually use this data if we anticipate that uh, the pandemic will be in ebbs and flows um, so that we prepare our delivery system and frankly our partners and our patients potentially what is to come. so as mark was indicating in addition to looking at age and in addition to looking at race we really want to look at uh zip code data you know going further uh below um the city that someone lives in we really want to look at sort of housing status not only individuals who are homeless for those individuals who might be um, bunking up with several members of their family who find it very difficult to self-isolate. Um, we want to be able to take that data and really have it inform how we work, not only within the organization, but as I said, across our community uh, moving forward. Thank you so much for putting this together. This is wonderful. This is probably one of the most nuanced I've seen um, so far. And so definitely look forward to working with you more on sort of maybe consolidating some of these things um, just to make it a little more intuitive. But also I'm really encouraged to hear that you're going to be looking at housing status. And I guess my question is, are we prepared to report on housing status? Do we collect that nuance of data between literally homeless, there's the HIPAA definition, the HUD definition, there's the couch surfing, um, are these data points that we, we are, are collecting um, pretty comprehensively or have plans to so that we can analyze that? Yes, we are um, actually collecting data comprehensively. There is a committee actually that um, is comprised of Denise Pitney, who's on the IT team, and Heather McDonald-Fine and Damon Francis around the collection of that data and information. Fantastic. And so I guess the other piece that as, you know, the numbers increase is wanting to also understand more about whether we have disproportionality in terms of um, death rates in one group, for example. And so thankfully we're, we're, we don't have enough data there yet and hopefully it'll stay that way. Um, but obviously, um, you know, some of the things we would want to know about would be, you know, of those who test positive, then how do they do? Um, and, you know, what are the outcomes? And so I think um, I just want to, again, thank you for 
for tracking this. this I think to me, this really underscores our commitment around um, eliminating disparities and ensuring an equitable response. And so, um, so thank you for doing this and leading the way. I'll agree as they, as they say in data analytics, good data illuminates the way and begs more questions. You know, just on my cursory review, you know, Span, uh, English speakers were tested roughly six times more than Spanish speakers. And then again, just what I quickly saw. And, and interestingly, about 40% of Spanish speakers were tested, tested positive, whereas around 6% of English speakers tested. That is extraordinarily curious data. And that's just me looking at the screen, trying to do math in my head. Um, uh, uh, I think that jives with the experience that, that people are feeling in hospital about our Latino population uh, being in-house. And I, my wife has taken care of a number of these patients, and we've, we've been having this discussion. So good data helps to illuminate the path but begs more questions. So thank you. Well, I mean, it should hopefully help drive some of our interventions, right? So if we're talking about outreach, do we have enough in Spanish? And so, I mean, I know these data are, are early, but what it's indicating so far is that, you know, that may be something we need to be uh, looking at doing. You know, are, are we doing robocalls and are they in Spanish and just so forth? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Great questions. Thank you. Great points. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Any more questions for Tony and Mark? Okay, great. I don't want to make the same mistake and cut this item short again. Was there, Kim, did you have, a, um, I have still Kim and Dr. Jamaladeen as well. Um, were there additional reports on the incident management team report? Uh, Kim did have a quick report on uh, COVID-19 funding. I don't know if uh, Gassan was going to add anything to the rest of it, so I'll check with him, but... You can go ahead and get Kim started. Okay. All right, Kim, take it away. Okay. So I, uh, I've got several pages here. I don't know if you want me to go through all of this. I, maybe I could just uh, quickly do this in the interest of time tonight. I want to know how much money we're going to get. <laughs> I wish I knew. But I, I could have done a much better job on my projection. Um uh, Obviously, the CARES Act is, is, is the big one. Probably everybody's heard about that. It has several parts. The first part is uh, the $10 million that we've already received. Uh, that was 6.2% based on uh, last year's Medicare fee-for-service revenue. Our payer mix is uh, about 20% Medicare, so... Uh, we will need to sign an attestation, and that, I think I already mentioned this, relates to the fact that we will not balance bill patients. They will not be charged anything more than their in-network um, co-pays, if you will. Um, part two, um, this one is, uh, I, I'm, I'm gonna, I will, it'll take me all night to go through if I give all these details, so I think I'll just say that we have not done the submission yet. I haven't seen it yet. It will open soon. Let's go ahead and go to the next slide. Part three, this is the high impact area distribution. This one, we just submitted our required data. Uh, it basically is ICU beds and number of uh, COVID patients. We haven't had a whole lot, so I'm not expecting a whole lot in that area. Um, part four is the telehealth. 
Um, we have submitted our application. We submitted 1.4 million of costs, thinking some might get denied. We're very hopeful that we will be successful there. Um, part five is a loan. Um, the applications are not yet available. Uh, we will look at applying. As far as I know, there's not forgiveness for it. Uh, next slide. These are now, I'm done with the CARES Act. This is a CMS grant. Uh, we expect to get 25000 and I'm, I got that information from CHA. So they're the ones uh, responsible for that grant. And then through the state, um, there's this refugee telehealth, and we submitted our application on April 17. I have no idea what we may or may not get on that one. Next slide. So for FEMA, um, typically a county might submit an application for, uh, for everyone in, a, in their region for a disaster. And we've talked to the county about that, and over the next month we'll see how that goes, if that's something that they want to do. But in the meantime, we went ahead and found out that as a district, we... Are, we likely will be able to do our own FEMA application. Um, we're, we've submitted for activation. We're waiting for approval. Uh, the thing with FEMA is it's pretty much after things settle. Then they reimburse you, and it's for very specific kinds of items. So, And it's only about 75% of whatever they approve. Um, there are pending programs. There's the 1115 waiver. Um, this is for whole person care flexibility and um, for housing and potentially some impact of Prime or QIP, which I don't have the specifics on, but we're kind of in a hold mode there. I have heard, though, that it may include um, reimbursement for uninsured patients. I'm going to stop there because Tangerine may have something to add. No, I think we're still waiting for uh, federal uh, review and consideration. Okay. Next slide. So there is this uh, federal matching of 6.2% increase, and that's, uh, that's a great thing for us. That is for Medi-Cal programs. It only applies to the pre-ACA, so not the expanded population. Um, but that will just run in the normal course of business. So that will be nice, but it's not upfront. Uh, the dish delay, we've been talking about that in the finance report. Um, many of you may know we had received $15 million extra money that we weren't sure if we are going to be able to keep. It looks like we will be able to keep it as long as our utilization supports it. And, of course, our utilization is down. So CAPH is uh, advocating on our behalf so that we can keep that funds. Next slide. Huh? That's it. Uh, any questions there? I kind of just blew through it. Questions again? Well, I assume uh, Kim, you'll be putting these into our budget assumptions as, as you get confirmation that we're eligible. Yes, so as time goes on here, um, when I have more specifics, we will include them. I just didn't want to do a lot of speculation. Yeah. Uh, when June comes around, maybe we'll have to be more speculative, but for now, um, I'm just we're just holding tight, trying to um, close our gaps and 
do performance on, on um, continuous improvement items that we can include and work plans associated with them. So that's our main focus right now for budget. Yep. Other questions for Kim? Thank you for that. Dr. Jamaluddin. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I just want to take a moment uh, to say something, and that's at the tail of the discussion related to uh, the Joint Commission and the Bright Spots. Uh, this pandemic has tested us as a system. And I can tell you, I have observed firsthand Bright Spot all, all around our system. Uh, and I want to take just uh, this moment to thank you know, our frontline caregivers, the nurses, the respiratory therapists, the doctors, uh, the EVS workers, everybody. I mean, when it comes to saving life and standing up, our our people are, are just great. Uh, the other thing I want to say, uh, uh, that, that the results of the quality of care that I have observed uh, firsthand at San Leandro, with the nurses, with the respiratory therapists, firsthand at Highland, with the nurses, with the respiratory therapists. And I have been in touch with Dr. Doish multiple times around difficult cases and uh, reviewing the charts of those patients. Those patients who received care in our ICU, they received top-notch care. So I just want to say as this as a bright spot. The other thing I want to say is that uh, today uh, uh, there was a patient uh, who has uh, an aortic aneurysm, which is semi-elective surgery, but it's an urgent surgery. And our doctors got together, and they tested him on the spot with our rapid testing, and he underwent an endovascular procedure that is first time performed at Highland, and they saved his life. Vascular surgeon Dr. Arabi and Dr. Greg Victorino. Just want to say this as like some of the bright spots as it relates to this epidemic. It is going to be hard really to go to normalcy, but we have to navigate how we are going to deliver care to all our patients and keep them safe with COVID and without COVID. Thank you. Can't hear you. on mute. Kassan? Okay. Hi. There. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Oh, so uh, you didn't hear what I said earlier, I guess, right? But you hear me now. Okay. Yeah, we heard, we heard most of what you said earlier. I was just okay. the last part. So the last part, I said that there was a patient today who uh, we, heard had, about the, we heard about the aneurysm. You heard? That's it. That's all I said. Okay. That's all. That's all. That's all. We finished. Mike, you can mute. I'm done. Mike, you're on mute. I'm done. I'm on mute. Okay. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> um, all right. Any questions or further comments on this item? Incident management team report complete. Okay. Great. All right. I will now go to the COVID nineteen um, task force. 
Well, I started to mention that on last Monday, um, the executive committee met. We decided to go forward with the COVID-19 task force. Um, that task force is uh, Trustee Zenergy, um, Bouquet, and myself. And Trustee Peterson uh, is my alternate. Thank you all for your service. Um, so our first um, activities have been, um, first of all, to scope out our work. And we did that um, based on um, feedback from Incident Command, also based on um, some of the findings within the JACO, um, uh, the JACO findings and response. Um, also questions that were raised in the press um, and by labor um, and by our county partners. Um, and just also, I think, what we're seeing in the country and in the world. I'm getting some feedback. I don't know if folks can meet themselves if they're not talking. That would be great. Um, thank you. Um, and so I'll just quickly go through the list of our, what our scope is. It's all just detailed, but um, uh, testing, PPE, um, physical distancing, and that's in the office spaces and, and in all, all the spaces um, through the system. Um, safe patient entry and patient transport. Uh, surge planning, um, the number and source of patients that we're receiving from, from other areas and it was specific concern around, around SNF. Um, disparities, um, some of which you saw the, the results of some of our inquiry um, in, in Mark and Tangerine's report. Um, and then also some of our specialized settings. Um, and so, and, and most notably, I would say it's John George, our ability to be responsive in, in that setting. Um, so that's, that's kind of an overview of, of what our current scope is. Obviously, that may evolve over time, but that's what we're seeing as currently. Um, the second thing we've done is um, sort of in response to um, claims that I think have been pretty highly publicized at this point, that HS fired a nurse as an act of whistleblower retaliation um, for putting on a trash bag. We felt that because this relates directly to um, claims of inadequate PPE that we've been hearing uh, in the press, and that is our, you know, one of our top um, charges as a task force to look at. Um, but we felt it was important that we ask for this to be investigated. So we have requested that Rick Kibler, who's the Vice President of Internal uh, Audit and Compliance, um, investigate uh, this matter and uh, report that back to the committee. Um, and then thirdly is that we are uh, working with the county liaison team um, to, to um, assist them with, with what they're wanting to do. I know that uh, they had hoped to do a site visit uh, today, um, and we're certainly attempting to work with them on this. Um, I think we just weren't quite there yet this morning, and that was primarily or solely due to the fact that we, we have not and actually still have not received some of the basic information that we requested, um, and that was regarding who the team is, their schedule, the scope of the visits, um, who they're wanting to interview, because obviously these are acute hospital settings, and we just want to make sure that these are well-planned and well-executed, um, and that there's coordination with the staff at the site, which I think is, is customary, reasonable, and it, it's kind of obvious that that would need to be done to not disrupt um, healthcare delivery at our acute hospital settings. And so we do look forward to receiving um, those responses uh, to those questions and coordinating um, with the county liaison team so that we can proceed um, with our, our joint work. And our meeting um, of the task force is, is our next meeting is calendared for Wednesday afternoon, um, and I believe we're going to try to keep that time as a weekly time. And and um, and and have invited um, Dr. Clement from the county, um, and hopefully we'll we'll all be able to um, keep that as a as a weekly um, 
standing meeting and do more if, if, if needed. Um, so I will stop there and see if the trustees have any questions or if staff wants to add anything or actually any of the other trustees uh, that's on the committee also would like to add anything at this time. Everyone's muted, so definitely raise your hand if you're wanting to say anything. Trustee Jensen, can we unmute and Trustee yeah, Jensen? Yeah, no, I just wanted to um, thank you for the update and point out that um, all of the trustees have already received communication from Supervisor Valle about today's um, meeting change of plans. Okay, yes, I don't know about a change of plan. That was, um, I think that the plan was that um, I had sent the questions um, and hadn't gotten the response, and so we kind of can't uh, short circuit that, that that process. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I know that we're all running and trying to, to respond quickly, and so I think we'll, we'll, we'll maybe need to get it right. And I, and I yes, yeah, so I'm sure we'll all have a chance to read the letter. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to take responsibility. I think. Uh, uh, the county was very anxious to get started, and I think we tried to work with them and see if we could get things going a little quicker. And I think we kind of perhaps overshot from what I mean, the process we can do because I certainly think the responsibility for any of that. So we've gotten off to uh, kind of a little bit of a shaky start, but I'm Great. It's a little hard to hear you there at the end, but okay. Uh, just uh, I'm I'm hoping that we can write the ship, and this can be a collaborative process. Thank you. Agreed. Other comments? Any questions? All right. I think we have one speaker on this. Um, Vanessa. Daniel, are you still here? Me? No, not just yet. Almost. <laughs> Next item. <laughs> and Vanessa, you're muted, so let's get you unmuted. Okay, can you hear me? Yes. Great. Um, hi, Vanessa Cedeno, um, Supervisor Woolwich Hands Office. Um, and I have been asked to read the letter from Supervisor Bay that you have all received electronically um, into the record. So I will go ahead and read it. Um, this letter confirms disappointment and dismay at the outcome of the first planned joint site visit by the Alameda Health System Board Trustees and County Liaison Team. As requested by the Alameda County Board of Supervisors, and in partnership with the Board of Trustees COVID-19 Task Force, a site visit to Alameda Hospital was planned for this morning. The site visit, which was requested by the Board of Supervisors more than three weeks ago, was planned collaboratively on a call yesterday with Trustees Peterson and Bouquet, both representatives on the COVID-19 Task Force, together with Dr. Clannon, our Medical Director of Healthcare Services Agency, and Jeff Chapman. Human Resources Director for HICSAF. During the call, the joint team discussed the goals of the site visit, agreeing upon the goal of balanced fact-finding and the importance of reaching a mutual understanding of the actual conditions on the ground in order to respond appropriately to safety concerns raised by staff. 
The team reviewed um, interview questions and agreed on methods for gaining honest feedback from staff. The team then discussed the logistics of the visit and reviewed the letter that would be sent to the executive leadership team prior to the visit. All agreed in order to ensure a frank and credible visit, it was best not to provide too much notice of the visit. The letter was sent this morning. Pursuant to the terms of the master contract between the county and AHS, the county is entitled to access AHS premises to observe operations and evaluate performance. County staff worked with your trustee to find a reasonable and agreed upon time for this visit to occur. Throughout this month, the county liaison team has attempted to do our due diligence to follow up on a litany of issues raised by physicians, nurses, and others. The team listened to representatives and members of CMA and SEIU and received frequent communications about specific issues and concerns on the part of the AHS employees. Themes that emerged from these communications include lack of availability and constrained access to PPE, inconsistent practices between managers, sites, and units, insufficient training and opportunities to practice use of equipment, unclear, inconsistent policies and criteria regarding when patients should be tested for COVID-19, how co-workers are notified and protected when a, follow, when a fellow employee tests positive for COVID-19. Unfortunately, a lack of trust between management and workers is apparent in these communications. These are serious concerns. The purpose of the site visit is to observe directly whether they are accurate and assess how widespread they are. The spirit of the joint team is to see this as a chance to identify opportunities for collaboration, for improvement in safety and communication, and also for the county to support AHS and its healthcare workforce to be ready to respond to the pandemic effectively. The Board of Supervisors and Delegates attempted to work in concert with the trustees. A detailed plan was developed with the two trustees who were representing the BOT task force, and the plan was interrupted by the president of your board, even though the trustees involved arrived at schedule for the visit. As elected officials, we cannot ignore the concerns of our constituents. However, we have done everything we can to work with AHS in a cooperative manner to understand the situation at the hospital site. We are dedicated to working collaboratively with the AHS board and administration, but we are not finding the same openness on the part of the board of trustees. This development is in violation of the county's contractual rights and the denial of access cannot continue. The county looks forward to rescheduling this visit timely and expects the board of trustees to facilitate rather than block this visit. These matters are time sensitive. Thank you for your understanding. Sincerely, Richard Valle, President of the Alameda County Board of Supervisors. I'm one of the employees who loves my job. 
and works with an amazing staff that go all out for our clients and our patients. And um, I uh, really am proud of our program and being a part of being able to be there for 20 years. Um, I'm Lucy Colvin, a therapist from the Intensive Outpatient Program at Fairmont. We're thankful to you and our leadership to be in conversation with us about the importance of serving the clients with serious, persistent mental illness in a comprehensive way that keeps them out of John George, PES, jail, and off the streets and homelessness. Um, we've just begun a conversation with Dr. Wise about how to balance our budget through finding additional revenues for our program to cover the portion of the additionally charged AHS overhead that the Medicare and Medi-Cal fees do not cover completely. They do cover some of it. Our program, our intensive outpatient programs are licensed under John George Psychiatric Pavilion to operate at AHS because our program is a step down from John George. Not only do we see many patients just out of John George, we also have seen many hundreds of patients referred by county case managers and county psychiatrists to keep them out of the hospital. So our program saves millions of dollars of keeping people stabilized. And we are asking you to include our intensive outpatient program in the 2020-2021 contract we are negotiating with the county to pay the overhead costs for John George. It's our understanding that this contract was negotiated last summer without our IOPs included. And we belong in that contract. Not only are we licensed under John George to operate, but we also serve the same population who are diagnosed with seriously persistent mental illness. Um, so you directed the leadership last fall to work with us to balance our budget so we could be more robust um, and keep open. And this would be an efficient, logical way to do this. Keeping our programs overhead funded this way will enable millions of dollars to be saved and many lives to be taken out of the revolving door. They will find themselves in going in and out of the hospital if we were to close, which is what the patient's experience was before they come to our program and become stabilized. So really hoping that when you look at this budget that you're negotiating with the county, that you'll find, um, talk with them and find a way to include us this time in the John George piece. It's not a lot. We, we mostly pay for ourselves. It's just the overhead, not even the whole overhead, part of the overhead. So it, it would really be uh, fantastic um, if you could include our program in, the, in this county funding, uh, behavioral health funding um, under John George, and we could continue to be the amazing staff working with the amazing patients and going way out of our way um, every day to be a great team. Um, we love working together, and we hope that you'll uh, um, include us in, in this portion of the budget. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. All right. Uh, Okay. Can you hear me? 
All right, just one slide on this here. So um, we've been discussing the FY20 rates for you know several months now. Um, the current agreement is structured the exact way the original agreement was structured. Um, there is a new twist to it. The county would like to put us at risk for admin days. Um, they've, they've talked about including some one-time funding and then kind of seeing how it goes after that. Um, uh, of course, we're concerned about that because those admin days are there because we haven't been able to find a suitable place for these patients to discharge to. So, um, we, it's kind of, we both need to help each other to, to be successful in that regard. Um, the county proposes that it would pay us $48 million, um, if we support it by utilization. So that means if we didn't have adequate utilization or too many denials, we would not be able to achieve the maximum contract. This is a $10.5 million increase over the FY19 contract. Historically, Alameda Health System or John George has not ever received the maximum amount. Um, at this level of funding, though, assuming we did receive it, based on the 2018 data, we would have a $9 million loss, and that's after all supplementals have been allocated. Um, I wanted to let everyone know if we, in, if we increase the cost to where we are currently running, that would actually be a $15.7 million loss we would have to find another way to cover. So that's the FY20 negotiation where it is now. Um, we have another meeting with, uh, with the county to kind of uh, take another look at the proposal. It has to go to the Board of Supervisors, but I know this is what's being laid out as of a week ago. FY19, um, the county has agreed that they would fund us to the max at 37.5. We were 8.7 million shy. Um, that would get a little closer to covering our costs, but still not close, not cover cost for 19. Um, there is an opportunity for the county to go back and revise their prior year cost reports from 14 to 18 and pull down some additional funding. And um, they said that they are going to do their best to do this work, but we have made no agreement as to what might come back to Alameda once they complete this process. Any questions on where we sit? I probably shouldn't. Um, I'll just, I'm just going to become a broken record. Uh, we have to pass a balanced budget with a small surplus to cover for rainy day happenings next year. We cannot have everything be a lost leader. That's all I'd say.
It has been a good process uh, with the county. I mean, I I feel like I haven't been around long, but because we've you know been transparent and both the county employees and the AHS employees have shared files and shared information. We actually do agree on that loss in 2018. So that is a start. You know, obviously, you know, we've increased some psychiatric coverage and done some other things that we've needed to do. Increased staffing. We've talked about that at the board meeting. That does increase costs. Those weren't there in 2018. Um, But I will say at least we're, uh, we we are sharing the same information and addressing the the critical issues. It's just uh, the county has not been forthcoming with full funding. So uh, what's your so, that's covered? Um, hey, Rebecca, you're muted. I don't know if you were. Oh, there you go. Oh, okay. And I, I didn't I didn't hear the end of his question. I apologize. No, I'm just. Just wondering what the county's expectation for the coverage of the gap is. Kimmy, you want to? Uh, the answer I got when I asked the question is we need to find it from somewhere else and um, potentially improve our operations, meaning have fewer admin days, get people out sooner. Um, find, you know, more step-down units, um, do other things. But again, you know, if if you talk to our caseworkers, they're doing, and our social workers, they're doing everything they can to find safe discharge plans. So um, there's definitely a need in the community. I think the county would also agree with that statement. Um, But at this point, we have not collaborated with and gotten to a place where we could actually commit to reducing admin days or even taking risk. I mean, we're already losing money and to just say that we would take risk, I mean, there's no there's no real upside for us, if you will. I'm not sure one understands what an admin day is. What creates an admin day? An admin day is when uh, a patient really shouldn't shouldn't need to be in the facility anymore. So they don't meet the medical necessity for an inpatient, if you will. So they're there, but our folks and the doctors do not believe that it's safe to send them out into the community. So in order for you to send, in order for a physician to discharge somebody, there has to be a safe discharge plan. And without it, they're stuck there in the hospital. So that's a problem with where to discharge people, crisis residential programs, permanent supportive housing, and are we responsible for those things? No. um, uh, Sometimes we do things to to help support people, but it is, I believe, and someone else can speak, but I believe it is county responsibility for this population. I mean, do we have access to funding even for, for those, for crisis residential and permanent supportive housing? Um, I think the short answer is no. Uh, we So, so uh, it, it would be a part of a benefit package that one would offer for uh, patients in this population, which from a, um, from a managed uh, perspective, they are in... Um, uh, the um, um, SMI population, which makes it from a managed care uh, coverage perspective that the county is to have the network to meet the uh, needs of the patients. Um, 
some of those challenges, they're, they're multifactorial, and uh, in some cases it can be that some places agreed. I, I think I've shared this before. Places agreed to accept the patient, but there are certain rules and criteria around the status that patient needs to be in, so they have to be off of a one-to-one, for example, and stable in other uh, sort of settings. And if uh, dur- and, and it has to be for a certain period of time. And so, if during that period of time the patient's um, uh, stat- status changes, then the clock starts over, and the status for the um, the peer determination for the need for the patient to still be there doesn't change. And so, it goes back to an admin day versus a denied day, and that would drive uh, um, admin days too. It still falls into the broader bucket of placement in the community, available resources to support other uh, uh, forms of care, um, uh, uh, lower levels of care that um, we are struggling, we struggle to, to uh, find sufficiently for the patient population. Uh, and we do, and as you know, you've approved a contract. We have um, historically purchased some uh, beds in the community um, uh, for uh, transitional uh, care for patients. Uh, uh, those are usually much lower uh, acuity and stable patients that um, uh, maybe for a host of other reasons don't have other access like board and care and things like that. Well, we have a contract for a small number of beds where uh, patients can be supported with life skills and uh, um, help to find jobs and other sorts of things on a transitional basis. Uh, we only have a few that we contracted for and those are full. Um, um, so, so that's pretty much my understanding of what we, we have and we don't to my knowledge, get reimbursed for those uh, services. In full disclosure, I just want to make one more comment. Admin days is, is the biggest issue. You know, I, Everybody would agree with that. We also have a high rate of denials, and that has to do with the fact that we're running two systems. We're running the county system, and we're running our own EPIC system. So we're constantly trying to reconcile the two. And it's, it's a disaster made to happen, in my opinion. Um, but again, we have had um, several meetings with, with the staff at AHS and the staff at the county. We've got um, a whole workflow that we've you know, identified all the problem spots. And now we were in the process of what can we do to make it better. So we have fewer denials, fewer unmatched is kind of the word that they use, um, uh, so, uh, problems, if you will. So we then had to cancel our meeting because of the COVID-19, and we didn't think this is something we could do unless we were all in a room and agreeing. Um, so the, my hope is that we can start posting all this information into EPIC. I can start getting reports on denials. I can work denials. I can get do concurrent under review of who's in the hospital, how long they've been there, you know, what are the what are the reasons why they're still there? Is there anything we can do to help move them along? But at this point, that information is not available to me or anyone really. So, yeah. um, can, I, can I just add, Kim? Um, and Chelsea, you, hopefully you recall this. Uh, you know, our perspective, and I want to echo what Kim said earlier. This has been a, I think, a very uh, collaborative and great process between uh, the AHS team and the healthcare services team, uh, particularly in behavioral health, uh, broadly um, or specifically to uh, get gain a shared understanding of uh, the care flow as well as the uh, peer flow and all of that to get to a great point um, of understanding. Um, uh, we're a little bit concerned with where we've landed with the um, 
with uh, the proposal, as it were, from the county for uh, additional funding. The funding is uh, higher, and that's better. Uh, the rates are going to be increased as we understand them, and we need that both for now and going forward because the rates haven't been updated since 1415. Uh, and that's a big portion of why we can't uh, draw down even the available maximum of the uh, contract. So, so those things are good. Those things are definitely progress, and uh, we want to be express great appreciation for them. Uh, the other thing uh, that is important to say is we aren't saying and have not said uh, privately or publicly we want an additional $15 million to cover our loss uh, uh, completely for John George because, as we have said, and as this conversation is bearing out, the need is greater in the community. And if we can get greater and probably more cost-effective in the community, if we can get more resources into the community to support the kind of uh, continuum for these patients, then we might actually have, uh, we may be able to spend $5 million and reduce $15 million. It just just an example. Uh, so that has been the, uh, um, part of our argument. I think there is an interest in doing that, and I believe there are actually been some efforts that uh, behavioral health is uh, trying to do or uh, consider to uh, pursue that. We just want greater alignment around it and just a, uh, an appreciation that to the extent that that's not done and however long it takes to kind of get those in place, it's us, quote, unquote, carrying the risk and absorbing the loss is basically then just falling to the bottom line. So uh, it's not like we can find funding somewhere else. We don't have a reserve. We don't have other funding sources that basically give us additional dollars. We have through this cut or, or allocated just about every supplemental dollar that we could that was appropriate for um, this service without basically then robbing Peter to pay Paul in another service. So we really are stuck with a, we either get it up front, fix the problem, or we get it in, uh, uh, you know, at, the, at the end of the line here. And we think the end of the line is the worst of all options. Um, it is definitely, as we understand, beyond the purview of healthcare services to say, you know, this is going to fall to the net negative balance. That's somebody else's decision. Uh, but unless and until it's resolved, that's effectively what's going to happen. And we're struggling with this. And again, there I say goes back to the conversation around how do you sustain and maintain quality and uh, a culture where everybody's working to do the right things when you're you're. You're robbing Peter of PayPal and, and dealing with these sorts of challenges where you can't fully invest in the organization in the way that you might want to and think it's prudent. Uh, Ross needs to be unmuted. Um, um, Mike. Mike, can you unmute? Yeah. Oh, there he is. Yeah, I, I just wanted to say these, these, these. Some of these are very complicated issues. Uh, uh, <clears throat> a lot of it has to do with social determinants and the fact that there's not a lot of uh, when people are admitted to the e, psych ER and they're ready for discharge, there aren't a lot of resources for them to be discharged. To, you know, the same thing holds with the inpatient and and having community resources. There is also. Uh, uh, and I'm not saying we're not doing it, but there's a whole skill involved around uh, the uh, uh, determining eligibility. And there's a whole process about uh, how you go about appealing it. And I'm not saying we're not doing it, but there, you know, there's work that can be done generally in acute inpatient programs to show that the that you look for uh, exit resources for the person, you couldn't find them, okay? 
and that there were other criteria under which they may need medical necessity and not the administrative failure. So there, there is, there is a, there is a kind of an art involved with it as well. And I know, uh, speaking for the companies I've worked for in the past, is that the appeal process on administrative phase is something that can be successful if you, if, you know, if you have the right skill set and you speak the right language for it, uh, and you're able to show that you've gone through a whole process. These things are complicated. Now, having, having said that, we, we're in a very difficult spot because we are the safety net providers. And when uh, law enforcement brings people to our front door, we're not, we can't say no, we're not going to take them. And uh, if there's no place to discharge them to, we have, you know, we have to keep, keep the client safe and you know, make, make it work. And so I think it, I think it, I think there's a lot of complexities here. And I do want to say on one hand, I appreciate the fact that uh, behavioral health has been willing to step up to the plate and work with us on this. And, uh, but I, and I understand to some extent where they're coming from with the denials, but I think it's kind of like a shared responsibility. And I think it's us trying to do a better job of uh, uh, justifying that people really need that level of service because there's no place to discharge them to and coming up with a lot more in terms of exit resources. Anyway, thanks. So, Ross, I wonder if uh, some other party could manage this responsibility uh, more effectively from a financial perspective. Well, I, th I think the I think the problem there is that uh, you know the, the way the system stands right now, the majority of our population is uh, Medicaid re Medi-Cal reimbursed in California, and we're short on Medi-Cal provider. And uh, for someone else to take it over, they could not do it as a freestanding hospital. They'd actually have to be a health system. And when you look around by, you know, there, there really isn't, I, I don't see any real alternatives to us right now, unless they were to change the laws around um, uh, the behavioral health having to be part of a freestanding <clears throat> hospital system in order to get the So I guess one question I have is around sort of moving a little upstream. I know we're having problems on the downstream end and with the, with the discharges and disposition of patients, but what about preventing um, admissions in the first place through outpatient um, services? And I know that, um, you know, we've heard a lot about IOP. We've heard a lot about mild to moderate. Um, what are, do we have plans or, or partnerships in mind around uh, outpatient services for folks with moderate to severe so that they're not falling off their medications, they're staying stable, and maybe we have less admissions in the in the first place. Well, and I know there, I know there's been, <coughs> uh, at one point, we were supposed to have um, uh, much greater access to the crisis residential programs and office. The past administration in Canada decided to go a little bit different direction. Ross, can you come closer to okay. uh, Mike? How to hear you? <laughs> So uh, what I was saying is there, uh, we lost beds at Bill of Okay, so that was a significant discharge resource for us. And, and I think we, at one point we had a short stay and we had 20 beds. And you know, we no longer have that. I think the county has agreed to come up between, I think I read 10 beds in some of our correspondence. But uh, the, other, the other side, so 
but a lot of it is diversion, okay, front-end diversion and back-end diversion. You have somebody come into the uh, site ER and you evaluate them and they don't really need an inpatient level of care, but they need, they do need some services. And maybe residential, maybe we have more access to the monitor center. We could work closely with them. That might help. Um, on the back end, uh, having more access to some people would be helpful. But I mean, you know, that's from our perspective. That's not to put it in the perspective of the overall system. But we're basically complaining because we're the only site emergency service in the county. We're the primary safety officer hire for people, especially for people who are without resources, especially the homeless population. And so, you know, we, we, we need to have a special relationship with the county about that and uh, to work, work together. But I think a lot of it, some of it has to do with, with us maybe doing a little bit better job of, uh, you know, determining eligibility and, and and we're, uh, you know, in, in uh, a few windows, but I think on a, on a broader basis, it really has to be with the social determinants in the county. We have a lot of homeless people, we need resources for homeless. If we have people discharged from inpatient, we need resources for that. And we really have to, we have to rely on, on the Alameda County State Department Health System. We can't do it ourselves. I don't know if everyone's aware of this, but the county does submit the billing to the state for the short doyle patients. Mm -hmm. So these are the two systems that we're running concurrently that don't ever seem to match up, which uh, is a real problem. Well, it is it is a struggle around the state. You know, each each county has their own system for billing for short doyle medical, and it's hard to get two systems to talk to each other, and it. it provides a lot of complexity and maybe it's one of those things that we can look like is is there some rules where we don't have to do duplicate entry is there, is there a way to structure this so that uh, the county is the provider of services at john george and and there's some sort of relationship with the hospital system so they meet that designation i i i don't i don't think so i i think at one at one time John George, although it was licensed under the under Highland, was um, operated by by County Mental Health for the most part. And then I think there was a <clears throat> strong argument made by the uh, hospital system that that was an acceptable way to hospital. Really, how to be administered. Might be worth exploring. Yeah, I think we. I, I think I probably maybe and then maybe not tonight, but at some point need more understanding about. Um, so if we're if we're the only psychiatric hospital in the county, um, and the um, step down, if you will, is not actually the responsibility of AHS, um, then how, how? Why would we be at risk for administrative days? What what sort of rationale? Well, I, I think part of it, you know, if you're sitting from the other side, they would wonder whether you were doing a good job of seeing uh, uh, the fight, who appeals or people were denying. Part of it, are, is it, are they all legitimately in these sort of days, or is something they are not documenting what's going on? Okay. Hmm. So that, that, that's kind of that's where we're 
And I would correct for us. Yeah, I would correct one thing. We're not the only acute inpatient that we're doing. We're the only psych emergency service. Okay. Right. Well, by default, you know, everyone goes, almost everyone goes to psych emergency service. So when we're saying at risk for administrative days, there's denied aid in that bucket. It's right. That's what I'm hearing. So yeah. it's about cleaning up the data in addition to the disposition issue. So we, we might need to like, suss that out a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Well, so, but, uh, you, don't, you don't know what degree of it is. It's real clear that there's not enough resources in the community. And we're yeah, talking about the people in the because they have no, no place to do. Well, can I just add, actually, and, and Tim sounds like Tim was going to say something. So the, the, I agree that this is all complicated, and it actually includes all of these uh, elements. The biggest part of what has been the challenge for us up till now, and, and part of this conversation, was that the rates that we were using uh, to pay for the, the cost, even for the approved days, were rates from 14, 15. You consider just 3% inflationary increases year over year, and you get to, you know, 1920. The biggest correction in terms of fixing the dollars that we weren't able to recoup in the past years, which, oh, by the way, if we, even if we recoup all the parts of the contract, doesn't cover the cost, but that, that, that gap has grown every year. So the biggest answer that we did, as you recall, to even address the 14 through 18 year um, um, up till now, which we're now realizing there's a greater opportunity but up to now, all we do is adjust the rate. And, and reasonably so, because the costs were there, and the costs are much greater than the rate. So, so now going forward, that's a big part of it, and we have to keep that proceeding um, uh, as we are increasing salaries and incurring additional costs for facilities improvement and all those things that are necessary to maintain the But the other thing you're absolutely right on, we have to get the deny days down, and part of that has been this great work that we're talking about to understand what are the drivers for those denials and how can we work those to improve them and get good, great data so that that happens. The admin days, on the, uh, 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 on the other hand, is a little different. It is in that category of, you know, inappropriate or at least from a payer perspective, a patient being in a setting that, that they don't think should be there. It's not about the data. It's about basically saying, okay, you've done all the things to uh, show that you're trying to place the patient. There's no resources out there. Patient's still in your house. So I'm just going to give you a small fee to cover the fact that we don't believe you should be providing uh, a, a, an acute level of services for this patient because he or she doesn't want it. But I'll pay your, you know, small administrative fee to cover it. Well, that small administrative fee, when you multiply it over a lot of visits, each one, even the main one, didn't cover the cost. Now you got a growing gap here. So even if we're working with it, the, the, the cost of the matter is you've got to get more resources into the community. So. And, and I, I would, I would argue, sometimes on, even on the administrative day, it, it depends on what your documentation is.
they may become an admin, it can become an admin day right away. And so if you're now in admin day status and that patient uh, uh, transferred uh, to another setting gets delayed or prolonged, it doesn't fall, it doesn't go back to a acute uh, justification. It goes back to an administrative day because that's the last place you were. So, so it's, yeah, you're, you're right. Yeah. But there is this thing with, with it, the question of whether they need medical necessity. And sometimes in the medical necessity time, I would just like to have a rudder so I can see and direct what's going on because right now it's all smoke and mirrors. Don't have the ability to see into it to to really fix it. Uh, I think we both sides learned a whole lot through this whole negotiation process. Well, and I I have to I have to say done a really good job of sticking in here with us and Del Vecchio and. And I think I think behavioral health is working with us. We just gotta find a way to, to make it work for all of us. All right. On that note, <laughs> um, okay. I think that that concludes our open session items. Um, Mike, are you with us? Can you move us into closed session? Yeah, so the uh, board will now move into closed session for the item as indicated on the agenda. Uh, so, um, trustees, you got a note uh, asking you to join a separate room. Those of you in the open session room, the meeting will stay open until the closed session ends. Um, and um, so, are there any questions before we move to the closed session? Seeing, hearing none. Thank you.